welcome to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Banity. Uh, this week, we've got a great conversation coming up with a friend of mine, Brandon Schweiss. Brandon, Love would everybody. you like to say a hello? Oh, sorry. I just talked over him. Oh, that's great. all right. So uh, <laughs> my name is Brandon. Um, I am currently working as a cardiac surgical ICU nurse. Um, I just finished my master's in critical care as a nurse practitioner, currently awaiting for regulatory bodies in Missouri to speed things up enough to actually get scheduled and take my boards. Um, I've worked in critical care for the last five and a half years and then finished my master's recently in critical care um, and have worked in the same kind of area this whole time um, and have been um, kind of dealing with COVID stuff ever since, well, Everything sparked up in March of a last year. Right on, right on. So I'm really looking forward to having that conversation. I think you have a very valuable perspective to give to people having worked like on site, you know, hands on. But uh, we're also joined by Max, who's going to be doing a little bit of co-hosting, a little bit of producing today. Hi, guys. And a new member of the Bio Breakdown team, Mason, who will be handling our audio engineering, audio quality, audio producing, however you want to say it. Hello, Mason. Hello. Uh, don't expect a lot of science information from me. I am a dumb guy, but I am good <laughs> with, <laughs> with audio software. And uh, Mason, what, what show do you work on? If you want to plug it, here's a free plug for you. Sure, I'll do this once. Um, I am also producer and co-host on the Soccer Capital podcast. Uh, that's a podcast that I host with uh, with Mike Turner and my friend Sean Campbell uh, talking about the upcoming St. Louis City SC soccer team. So if you're into soccer, you can check that out. Awesome. And I can vouch for that. I mean, like, I'm not a soccer guy, but, you know, I've listened to a few of their episodes and it's entertaining enough. Uh, especially compared to what passes for sports media these days. But I do have a few things I'd like to say before we get into our conversations today, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, you know, our last episode, a little bit rusty, very sick, not great hosting for me. So I'll take the hit on that one. If you listen to that, I hope you could tell that Brandon Mayers, who we had on, I'd hope you can see that he's a very intelligent person with a lot of interesting things to say, but that was not my best hosting, so I'll just I'll just own it off the bat. So I hope if you listen to the whole thing, you are at least semi-entertained. But uh yeah, on to this week. I mean, uh Brandon, you're a nurse. Like you weren't born this way. What happened? Well, I can walk you back through what led me to go into medicine from the get-go, if you'd like. So, That'd which be... will actually cross over how our our paths crossed uh, some years ago. So, um, to kind of run down where medicine background comes in my family. So, my first off, going first lineup uh, generationally, my dad is a paramedic firefighter. So, paramedic, medical field. He has siblings that are nurses. His father was chairman of SLU's anesthesia department um, for roughly 35 years. He performed the first um, open heart surgeries as an anesthesiologist here in the, in the U.S. Um, doing pediatric cardiothoracic anesthesia, as well as some other very neat um, cases such as 
conjoined twin separation, the first one here in the United States and some other interesting things. So uh, to say that medicine was in the background of the family was fairly accurate. Um, I actually started out at SLU for my undergraduate, same as Chris here, and originally thought I wanted to do biomedical engineering and then go pre-med from there and go into prosthetic development um, is actually kind of what my original focus I thought would be was maybe prosthetic development, something along those lines. And then I quickly learned that um, that route of uh, kind of going towards medicine uh, was very not suited to my type of personality. Um, the thought of uh, maybe three or four gentlemen besides myself in a lab having to deal with me all day um, would have driven them all crazy. And it would have been very terrible for any industry that I was involved with. <laughs> um, and then I found out that nursing, you typically have several people per day and then you may never see them again. And that's probably much more ideal for my type of personality. So I ended up uh, gearing myself more towards the people oriented uh, side of medicine and found it to be a good career to go towards. So, and I, I must say up until uh, last year, I was thoroughly enjoying my ride and my journey in critical care. Um, I, you know, take us back to uh, February of 2020, things looming in the air. I was like, well, we'll kind of see what's going on here. This is an ideal. Well, first pandemic uh, as a healthcare worker, we'll see what's going on. I'm cruising through my uh, master's in critical care uh, up down at Goldfarb, which is Barnes uh, related nursing program. And uh, then the yeah. wheels quickly fell off everything. <laughs> so, no, I was Go just going to say, I mean, that that's, uh, it's a lot uh, there. I mean, I don't think like, so I, I respect nursing a lot. Um, you know, my mom's a nurse, so good. Cause nobody does, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> but I respect nursing a lot. My mom's a nurse. Um, but you know, I never really knew kind of what it took to start that process or anything until, uh, I, I went to college, not that I was super interested in it, but could you talk like a little bit about like, before we get into, you know, the thick of things, could you talk a little bit about kind of like what the process was of getting into a nursing program and how that went? And, and especially like, I think a lot of people, when they hear nursing, they think, boom, four-year degree work, but you're on that yeah. master's track. So there's actually so a number of different ways you can go about the route of nursing, <clears throat> Um, some people think that you have to go a four-year route to actually get a nursing degree. And actually, you, you don't necessarily need to. Um, there are multiple different ways to do it. So the culture, especially prior to last year, was a lot of different hospitals wanted to get. I'm trying to think if it was leapfrog status. No, magnet status. So, And what that meant was a certain percentage of your staff had to all have their bachelor's. Um, a bunch of different kind of science-based metrics, actually, um, you know, in terms of having higher levels of education, more focus on evidence-based practice and research, um, and that kind of helping towards your hospital and being something to kind of attract people to your hospital. Um, with everything and staffing shortages and whatnot, that is the continual cycle of nursing, unfortunately. Um, it actually speaks a lot to our uh, currently aging out boomer generation, um, who are extremely expansively taking over the healthcare scape realm in terms of the patient population. And uh, quickly, we are having people age out faster um, into needing tertiary care in hospitals, long-term care facilities and whatnot, um, much quicker than we are supplying people to take care of them with. So um, the route that I went, because I went into this um, starting out in engineering was 
uh, I actually went and talked to SLU's Dean of Nursing and I said, okay, here's where I'm at in this program. Um, what is the right steps for me to go to get, to go into the nursing program? Um, do you want me to stay here, take my prerequisites um, elsewhere, whatnot? And she was actually quite honest with me and said, well, quite frankly, if you go and take them at the community college or you take them here, we don't really care. You can go and get your, your basic credits that you do not need and you can keep all of your elective higher level math and engineering courses that uh, do not count towards that as electives. <laughs> and so I uh, chose the route of going to the uh, community college because it turned out that it was, um, you know, taking a zero off the end of the yearly cost um, and the cost metrics. Um, and they told me they were not gonna weigh it any different whether I did the one or the other. So I went the route that a lot of people uh, go as you go and get your prerequisites through the community college. Now they do have a, a good nursing program actually at the community college, as well as there's a plethora of different programs around uh, St. Louis from SLU, Chamberlain, UMSL. Um, and there's different routes you can go. So there's the traditional four-year route. I actually have a younger sister who is at UMSL right now. And so for the first two, two years or so, you mostly do just your regular prerequisites as sometimes a little scattered like type of nursing course, but really she's now in her junior year and everything really starts popping up now. Um, so the route I went, um, if you were going in with a fair amount of credits, um, there's kind of two different methods that uh, are kind of most prudent. So what I choose to do, chose to do was Goldfarb has what's called an upper division and an accelerated program. So the accelerated program um, is something that I, don't necessarily recommend anybody unless you were on a very short time frame that you need to get something done um, because it is cramming all of uh, the nursing focused courses into one continuous year. Um, it is brutal, grueling, and I it's a lot of plug and chug. And I really think it's hard to retain stuff in that short of a format. Mm -hmm. I chose what I thought was a much more reasonable um, scope and did the upper division, which is five semesters going continuously 14 week semesters with a couple weeks off in between, uh, which actually I felt was like a pretty good speed route because it doesn't shoot you too far off of um, the normal pace, which is about two years to get through the bulk core of your courses. Now I want the bachelor's route. You don't actually necessarily have to get your bachelor's, although especially as hospitals were um, really seeking out magnet status um, over the last five to 10 years and different things, um, you know, kind of the way that things were trending, it's, you might as well kind of get it. And then oftentimes, like for instance, the hospital I work at um, were, was requiring up until very recently, they actually surprisingly just canceled this um, goal, was having everybody within five years of joining had to be start working on getting their bachelors. Um, so you can go the route where you go to the community college or any number of programs and you could just get your RN and you can not have the bachelor portion of the courses and you can get done in like two years. Um, kind of more from the standard, once you have your prerequisites done, you know, some anatomy and physiology, um, chemistry, so, and a few different things. So that RN or, or registered nurse uh, status, is that more of like a professional certificate? Or? So there is, um, that is regulated by the board of nursing. So um, an RN is an RN. Um, there's, if you have your bachelor's, um, it, it gives you higher accreditation in terms of your education. Um, it has, it really, sinks in on the focus of evidence-based research um, portion of the nursing portion. So all my bachelor's classes are related to that. 
really we're mostly um, working with research and theory and evidence-based practice and incorporating, you know, evidence-based trials into your actual practice. So um, everything we like to say in nursing is supposed to be evidence-based um, is what we go and practice off of. So from doing lots of different uh, randomized, non-randomized trials in different settings, such as, for instance, in my ICU, trialing different um, types of dressings or something um, in your care, and then seeing what things have better outcomes, less um, rate of complications for patients and et cetera, um, is what a lot of that focuses on in the bachelor's portion. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, I like, you know, everybody knows the concept of a nurse, right? Like everybody knows like nurses work in hospitals, nurses help doctors, nurses help surgeons. <laughs> everybody has seen MASH, right? So nurse, but like, there's what? actually a, quite another, a whole nother side of nursing though, that mm-hmm. a, a lot of people don't really realize. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of nurses out there that have nothing to do with hospitals nor doctor's offices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can do remote telehealth, you can work on the insurance billing and coding side. There's a lot of different things you can do. I, I always tell people if, you know, guts and blood and gore is not really your thing. If you can stomach through the clinical portion of it, you can find some niche area of nursing that you'll actually fit into quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pretty much somewhere for everybody, whether it's being a product rep for a company, for assisted devices, there's just quite a few different routes and different areas that nurses are actually required in. I mean, some people, um, even like I have some friends that like to do uh, in previous years, they would just go and do health screening blitz at different companies. So all they would do is go and your um, biometrics that they would normally take for you to get usually an insurance discount at your company would be like taking your blood pressure, checking a a blood sugar, and then checking your cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So just doing some minor lab draws and different stuff like that. You know, you can go around doing blitzes like that um, as Mm -hmm. well as there's also the wonderful world of school nursing as well. Mm -hmm. So um, anybody that has managed to uh, fall into something metal or concrete as a child while at school and got a little bit lightheaded has probably gotten to at least come across one of those at one time or another. Uh, myself um, being particularly clumsy or accident prone, maybe has seen one a little bit too often. And maybe that's what really influenced my decision to go in that path. And I just haven't realized it until now. Well, that's, you know, we're not just here to bring it to the people we're here to bring it to the guests as well. So I'm glad we could give you that kind of revelation today. Um but yeah, man, I mean, again, I think it's really important that we like nursing doesn't have to be this, you know, surface level like thing where we all again, just say like, oh, that guy's a nurse. She's a nurse, whatever. It's very expansive, as you said. Um, so you finished your your work uh, in your program and you pursued critical care nursing. So prior to, as, as people in the Midwest say, you know, this thing or all this going on, uh, what were you mostly like, what was your kind of routine? Like what, what were you working on in a hospital as a critical care nurse? Um, so, um, I specifically went to a cardiothoracic, um, surgical ICU. So, I'm in a little bit smaller community hospital here in St. Louis. Um, so it's not divided up quite as much. So as like Barnes, for instance, downtown, where you have a cardiothoracic, cardiovascular, 
cardiac care unit, and then medical ICUs and um, neuro ICUs all separated out to different things. As a little smaller hospital, there's two ICUs. You have two flavors. One is medical. Medical encompasses most of ICU patients that are not going to require any surgical interventions. The mm -hmm. surgical side, which is what I work on, um, has neuro, surgical. So general surgery can be anything from somebody has their knee done and um, through an un unforeseen circumstance, they manage to throw a blood clot or something and have a pulmonary embolism and then end up in the ICU. So it's anything surgery related that needs ICU level care. Um, and then kind of our bread and butter where I am from is kind of cardiothoracic surgery. So open heart surgery. So mm -hmm. you have coronary artery disease, you have what's called multivessel disease usually is um, kind of our bread and butter, which means you have blockages in multiple coronary artery vessels that are clogged up to the point where um, they cannot do what's called a, when they go and try to do a cardiac cath, everything is too clogged up to really stint and open that back up um, with good chance of success, or it's some vessels may already be completely occluded. Um, so they need um, bypassing. So that's quite a bit of what we do. Also, um, a lot of valvular abnormalities or failed valves. So people getting valve replacements on top of cabbages as well and then uh, aortic aneurysms, a number of different things. So what I really liked coming out of school, um, my senior practicum, so if for everybody that's not familiar with the nursing curriculum, as you were going through the program, you were doing clinicals. These clinicals take place in a number of different units. So they kind of get you spread around the hospital and looking at different areas. So you may go up to telemetry floor. What that means is people that are remote telemetry monitoring. So they have heart monitor leads hooked up to a portable box usually. So you can constantly see what their heart rhythm is doing. Um, so usually slightly higher acuity there. Um, you know, you go to a renal floor. I got to spend some time down in interventional radiology, which I really enjoyed, um, which that can be anything uh, wildly varying from um, them just inserting, you know, what would like a specialized line that's gonna stay in for long-term for somebody getting antibiotics um, to actually some very interesting research that I had seen down there where they were um, actually going up and chemically um, kind of, not, I wouldn't say deadening, but uh, anesthetizing kind of half of, hemispherically half of the brain. Mm -hmm. So um, this was very interesting research actually in seizure um, where they were trying to figure out where the um, centering of a person's seizure was through neural mapping. And um, it was kind of interesting. They would um, rapid fire go through, they would, kind of shut down the one side of the brain by anesthetizing it and then start pulling up papers um, with different things and having the person call out the different things or follow commands um, so they could, you know, determine right and left brain dominance and try to find where the seizure um, were most likely coming from in order to better treat them. So you come across a lot of different stuff in your time doing nursing. My senior practicum was uh, down at uh, formerly known as St. Anthony's, now known as Mercy South. Um, as it has slowly congealed itself into the um, giant marketplace of only a handful of entities in St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis does have a unique kind of health, health scope um, kind of layout in terms of its hospital system. So typically in your large everyday city in America, you typically have like one trauma center is what we'll call it. So a trauma center is somewhere where somebody that's, you know, been shot, been in a terrible car accident, very high level acuity um, would go if something happens, you know, it, or it could be extreme burns in a fire. 
anything along those lines. St. Louis is odd in the fact that we actually have three of those um, within a fairly close radius as well. Normally trauma centers are usually separated by a fair amount of distance, sometimes 50, 75 miles. Um, whereas ours are separated by, in one case, I think about seven miles and the other one about 11 miles further out. Um, mm. So those being Barnes, SLU, and Mercy, the main um, branch of Mercy. So it, we have a kind of an odd um, area in terms of that. And then also um, everything mostly belongs to two entities in St. Louis. It's either Barnes, so something under the guise of WashU Barnes, um, owned and then uh, Mercy. So almost everything is within those two networks. Um, I am in the third outlying network, if you can call it that, which is uh, St. Luke's, um, smaller community mm -hmm. hospital. Very proud of what we do. We kind—I feel like we kind of shoot above our uh, our uh, expectations quite often. Um, but we only have two um, hospitals: our main campus in Chesterfield and a small tertiary campus, which used to be it used to be just called DePere Hospital. Um, that we bought out actually a few years ago. So, but we are uh, very small independent in the market of giant conglomerates that have um, in some cases, you know, 15, 20 different hospital locations um, mm -hmm. with the bigger um, entities that are in St. Louis. So we have a very odd um, system also where we just have a lot of hospitals like within a darts throw of each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you look at a map of St. Louis and there's never a hospital very far from you. Um, yeah. which normally they're much more spread out. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I mean, growing up, I didn't really have a perspective of what a normal city, you know, looks like in terms of like the number of hospitals or whatever. And again, you know, my mom as a nurse, so I, I never really looked at it from any kind of outside perspective. But I do remember like getting lifeguarding training and then they're like, all right, well, you have to send the person to the, the closest hospital, like, because, and then like, they're like, this isn't usually a problem in other places, but here there's, you know, <laughs> so yeah. many hospitals. Um, and, and oftentimes, uh, depending on the level of care, they're able to give at different hospitals. It chooses, uh, from my dad, having the background in emergency medicine, being a paramedic, um, you know, you have to, at least from their perspective on the ambulance, they have to go to the most qualified center that can handle what they're bringing. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if it is a um, code stroke where somebody is having an active stroke and it's expected to be maybe a large vessel occlusion or something, they need to go to a, an interventional stroke center. So somebody mm -hmm. that can do clot retrieval, um, if that is, you know, the causation or coiling for aneurysms. There's a number of different things. And then obviously, um, you know, you look at your more small tertiary care centers. Um, if you have someone in a very giant motor vehicle accident or a multiple gunshot wound victim, you don't want to stop off in your smallest uh, outlying hospital on the outskirts of St. Louis and stop off and expect them to be able to take mm -hmm. care of um, that situation. So they're, you, they have to go to the closest hospital, but it, it also uh, isn't always the closest <laughs> yeah. hospital. So, and you uh, oftentimes pass them quite frequently. Yeah. And, it, you know, in case people didn't know, like, somehow, uh, we're all from St. Louis, basically. So, this, you know, it's no, no coincidence that we're just, you know, chatting STL life. Um, yes. Um, uh, obligatory Ted Drew's <laughs> custard, uh, crown candy, and uh, toasted ravioli, and Provella. It is cheese. a good cheese. It's fine. Uh, don't forget the gooey butter cake. 
Gooey butter cake. Yes, uh, there's a lot of St. Louisisms in terms of culinary taste that uh, uh-huh. people seem to turn their nose at from wherever they're from. <laughs> well, I just thought you didn't mention gooey butter cake as a as a healthcare professional. You didn't want to. T- <laughs> you didn't want to t- yes, yes. I, I wanted to make sure that I only spoke about healthy things, especially coming from a cardiac background. So I mentioned Crown Candy in there. Um, they are famous for a giant BLT sandwich, which uh, you know I would give the perspective of about you know this much bacon (laughs) and one sandwich. And, uh, you know, I did still mention them, so I don't think I can really harp on gooey butter cake being (laughs) as the the most evil of the things in there, you know, (laughs) although diabetes and, uh, heart disease are very large factors of the U S population. Um, Mm. heart disease actually being the number one, um, for overall, Mm. um, actually in terms of negative, uh, health care outcomes for people. Mm -hmm. Um, I still did mention the place that has the giant BLT, of course. <laughs> dude, I, I don't, want... I can't say this is an area particularly known for its health foods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, not going to find a lot more of, of the seasonal of... kale chips in St. Louis. <laughs> but, so uh... if you search hard enough, you will find some. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what you had been working on. Um, and, or I guess the department within which you were working. Um, and then I guess, you know, why, why wait? Let's just dive into kind of the big situation, if that's what we're going to call it. And like, what was that like working in and around ICUs kind of at the very beginning? Cause you kind of briefly mentioned earlier that this thing was kind of hanging in the air and people didn't really know how it was going to go. And then, you know, the wheels fell off, as you said. So um, backing up slightly, so some of the things that we do in my unit um, that I didn't mention, there are some patients that would be what we would call, you know, medical patients um, that aren't necessarily going to need surgery, but we do care, take care of. And those are patients that um, end up on assistive devices. So certain different assistive devices, there's a number of different ones. They can be um, only cardiac in nature in terms of assistive devices. There's renal replacement devices. So machines that can do continuous slow form dialysis that's much more gentle to a patient that's critical and ICU condition. Um, so there are different things that we sometimes take care of that aren't surgical necessarily in our ICU, especially more on the cardiac side. Um, mm-hmm. One of those things, for instance, um, in previous years has been flu. So mm-hmm. every um, winter until um, actually this past winter, I feel like was the first year that we did not um, cannulate anybody. So we use a machine called ECMO. It's extracorporeal membrane oxygenator. So what that basically all that mumbo jumbo means is it is a device that pulls all the blood out of your body. It sends it through a circuit. This circuit is a oxygenator is what it's called. Basically it's a small um, or a decent sized device that is made of a bunch of microtubules and it exchanges gas. So the gases exchanges are oxygen and carbon dioxide. So what this does is it oxygenates the blood takes the carbon dioxide off of that and you can adjust the amount of both of those um, and then puts it back into the body. So what do you use this thing for? Um, in the case of like flu, you can use ECMO for primary lung failure. So the lungs are too sick for somebody to be able to maintain their oxygenation and gas exchange on their own. So you would use it to do the work of the lungs and let the lungs rest. Um, this machine can also be used in a number of different metrics. Um, you can use it for heart and lung failure or um, you can kind of break it up and piecemeal it into just supporting part of the heart, the whole heart, 
you can support the right side of the heart independently of the left or the left side independently of the right or biventricular support, which is where you support both sides. Um, so there's a number of different modes through which you can do it. Typically in years past, um, I would say usually we saw two or three people every year just in my unit that we would have um, get very, very sick from flu every year. And their respiratory failure would get so bad that they actually were not able to be oxygenated while being on a ventilator, being in a medically induced coma in terms of sedation, being under anesthetics and sedation, and then also on top of that being chemically paralyzed. So giving them paralytics to knock their diaphragm um, out of the picture in terms of resisting the ventilator in order to be able to more um, controlled, ventilate them through the ventilator and control their breathing, as well as take their metabolic um, consumption of oxygen down to as low as you can, which when somebody is completely out and under sedation and they're also paralyzed, um, they cannot consume very much oxygen. Um, so that's your best chance um, at keeping somebody off of getting on one of these machines. And then when all else fails, um, it's what I like to call the Hail Mary pass where we put in somebody on ECMO. Mm -hmm. um, so um, this involves very large, what are called cannulas, which um, think effectually basically of it as a garden hose that's much more sophisticated. So these are fairly you know, large tubes. They're smaller than a garden hose, I'll be quite frank, but um, not as much smaller that, that you would like that have to be inserted whether peripherally, meaning um, it could be inserted, inserted in the groin in the femoral artery or vein, depending on if you're doing venous to venous or venous to arterial, mm -hmm. or you can be centrally cannulated. So this machine's very, very closely related, practically the same thing as when you hear about somebody having heart surgery, open heart surgery, and they go on what's called bypass, where they're bypassing the heart during cardiac surgery and they stop the heart mm -hmm. um, through cardioplegia. So this is basically that same machine in a more portable sense that we use out on the unit. So sometimes people actually do end up on this machine because they are going through heart surgery and they go to kind of kickstart the heart back up again. And the heart is not beating as it's supposed to and not pumping effectively enough. So sometimes, um, you know, I would call this kind of salvage ECMO um, post coronary artery bypass salvage where somebody, their pump is not working. So they are not actually um, beating well enough to be able to supply their own blood that they need. And their heart is overloaded for whatever reason and not able to um, continue. So what we do is we keep them on the bypass like they are in, in surgery and they're essentially cannulated. So what that means is they have their chest actually still open and cannula is going in um, directly into the in, uh, inferior vena cava and one into the aorta. And that's where the blood's flowing. So entirely taking the heart and the lungs out of the picture, um, we will still ventilate them, but with them not having a completely closed chest, um, you don't actually want to inflate the lungs very much. Mm -hmm. So you need both for that. In that case, there may not actually be anything wrong in particular with their lungs, um, but when everything is not a closed system, their sternum is um, sadly in two and uh, not completely closed. Now they are closed by dressing and different things, but their actual chest cavity is not closed. So that's centrally mm -hmm. cannulated. Um, so that doesn't occur very frequently. Most of the time um, people are peripherally cannulated. Um, so in the case of flu, um, these are peripherally cannulated. So 
they are people that oftentimes have a good, strong heart. There's nothing actually wrong with their heart. They are entirely in what's called acute respiratory distress because of flu. And their lungs have gotten to the point where they can no longer actually exchange carbon dioxide for them, even if we've taken everything out of the picture. So as a last ditch effort, if we feel they are a good candidate for this, um, we will put them on ECMO. So things that make you not a good candidate, um, extremely high BMI. Um, it's actually quite interesting. Um, large concentrations of adipose tissue, actually, um, if anybody's familiar with the term cytokines, which are toxins in the body, um, there's something very similar to that, that kind of evokes inflammatory response to the body called adipokines. And actually people that have extremely large um, amounts of subcutaneous fat tissue actually give off these adipokines and um, that causes a systemic inflammatory response. And basically that just leads to poor outcomes. So in the settings of like lung transplant, heart transplant, the different things, almost all of them have a cutoff of a certain BMI. Mm-hmm. Usually it's around 35. So, and what that um, means is that they've studied and seen and people that have a BMI over 35, their mortality risk um, goes up quite exponentially with each percent above that. And actually um, in the setting for ECMO, actually, I believe um, the mortality rate for somebody with a BMI that is actually over, it's either 40 or 45% actually is like a hundred percent. They've never actually, I don't think had anybody survive being on this machine um, successfully, um, because of the systemic inflammatory response, it does quite the world win in the body. So, um, things like multiple organ failure, you know, if their liver is failing, their kidneys are failing, um, basically different things like that in, in really high age, Mm -hmm. um, as well as being very large, um, being very old, um, does not bode well for you getting on this machine. Um, it is very harsh to take all of your blood out of your body subject it to a foreign surface material and then inject it back into the body. So mm-hmm. actually I believe the mortality rate for people over 80 is actually as well, hundred percent. Nobody has survived that is over the year age of 80 on this machine lived. So generally speaking in previous years, our criteria would be, you know, a BMI usually at least under 40, if not, we're kind of shooting more towards 35, but that was kind of a little more loose. Our guidelines are not nearly as strict as transplant, um, mm-hmm when you're looking at transplant, the gift of organs are very, very hard to procure and very hard to come across. Um, so mm-hmm. they're very, very selective in that. And there's actually even more criteria than we are looking at um, okay. with our ECMO guidelines. Um, and then, you know, age. So generally speaking, we would not put anybody on ECMO that's over the age of roughly 70. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're here and there, we would sometimes compromise on that a little if, you know, what you're, they're what you would call a really healthy 70 year old. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody knows um, what you mean by uh, a rough person that looks 72 and somebody that looks great for 72. Um, yeah. Everybody has experience seeing somebody and asking, you know, saying, oh, how old are they? And they say, oh, I'm 55. And you go, oh, dear God, I thought they were 80. <laughs> yeah. And uh, vice versa, you know, <laughs> how old are you? Oh, I'm 82. And they're like out running a marathon. Uh, actually, I saw a... 80 or 82 year old doing it, a, a participating in a tough mutter recently. I saw a video <laughs> clip of that. So um, everybody's individual health obviously can have some factors on that. Mm-hmm. Although age being a fairly large determinant and uh, you know, size and relative health of the person. So provided they met the different metrics that we're looking at, their heart and lung are fine. Mm-hmm. Their hearts are fine. They're just dealing with the primary respiratory infection of the flu and 
their kidneys are working fine still, then we'll put this on, them on this machine. Generally speaking, how long does somebody go on this for? Um, it can vary quite de dependent on what you're going on for, for primary lung failure and acute respiratory distress. Generally speaking, I'd say most of our flus were somewhere between two to three weeks on this. Um, okay. Sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. So then they would be maintained on this for a couple weeks. And then we would do what's called daily wean trials, where we basically turn down the amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide that the machine is exchanging and turn up the ventilator a little bit more um, to let them do more of the work in terms of exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide and see if they're ready to come off it. So right. that's primarily a lot of what I saw this machine used for was primary lung um, primary lung problems. So flu, typically every year we had like two or three of these um, where somebody mm -hmm. would get so sick from flu um, that they would actually need this. Um, and uh, our success rates actually with that were quite, quite high. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the acute, acute respiratory distress syndrome has a number of different definitions um, in terms of the metrics that it's actually defined by. But the easiest thing to remember is it's just basically the lungs are very, very sick and they're kind of have sustained some trauma from a primary infection, or it can be um, blunt force trauma can actually cause this as well. So somebody okay. that's been in a bad car, car wreck, um, broken a lot of layer ribs can have pulmonary contusions. So basically bruising of the lung tissue, you mm -hmm. could end up needing this, you know, for also in that type of circumstance. Okay. So acute respiratory distress though, is something that's fairly, you know, before last year, we felt like we had a very good grasp on the clinical guidelines for it honestly had not updated all that much since about 2008. Um, it's a pretty mm -hmm. tried and true method of taking care of these people. Um, you basically reduce the amount that you're ventilating in terms of the total volume on the ventilator and increase the pressure that's at the end of every expiration to help keep the lungs open um, mm -hmm. while resting them to not force them to do as much. And then you sedate these people and mm -hmm. if needed, paralyze them. And then in sometimes cases you end up on ECMO. So okay. fairly charted course where we really felt like we very well know what we were doing there. The clinical guidelines were not changing much. It's a pretty tried and true thing. Okay. Um, so like a successful kind of like preservation of life technique, right? That you guys yes. had pretty well knocked out for like cardiac emergencies. That'd yes. be safe to say. Okay. Um, cardiac emergencies, um, a little more on the dicey side. So, you know, okay. the, the salvage cases I'm talking about where the heart's not working after surgery, that those ones, not as high of a success rate, um, mm -hmm. for different things. Someone has spontaneous rupture of their mitral valve where their valve suddenly fails. One of the valves in their heart suddenly fails. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing to put somebody on for that until you can go and surgically repair that valve. Okay. Um, I've seen that used for a lot of that and very good success rates on that. Okay. And a number of different syndromes, especially the primary respiratory things mm -hmm. um, that are not long-term chronic things, very acute events. Mm -hmm. um, very good success rate, actually. I, I've, our institute posted, boasted a pretty good overall um, success rate and a very low mortality rate. Okay. Yeah. No, I think it's, I mean, that was, that was a very good, thorough description of these machines, which, you know, I think you know, we heard about in the news, a lot of people could probably guess like what a ventilator does, um, you know, that that's pretty intuitive, but hearing, you know, the term ECMO, uh, unless you're a practitioner in the field, you probably didn't know what that was until, you know, 2020. And, um, I, I will say actually a lot of even healthcare people don't necessarily know what ECMO is. 
Mm -hmm. um, it's a very highly specialized um, device and not every institute does this. Only usually your bigger institutes do it. We're a smaller community hospital. We do stu still do use ECMO quite often. Mm -hmm. um, but this is not something that in a small, like say 50 bed hospital that they have the resources to do. It takes an extensive amount of training, uh, a lot of manpower to do. Um, you have to have cardiothoracic surgeons to insert the cannulas for the device, as well as perfusionists to set up and um, help get the device going. And it takes a lot of training and okay. resources to use. Um, and actually, oftentimes I would have doctors come down and say, oh, this is the ECMO. And I would say yes. Um, and then explain kind of how things work. And oftentimes a lot of doctors that it's not, you know, critical care medicine is not mm -hmm. their, their field. They may have never actually encountered ECMO in their um, training right. and whatnot. So, um, and actually it's, it's fairly newer actually in the adult realm. I'd say more. 20 to 25 years that it's really been used for adults. It actually started out in pediatrics actually is where okay. it um, kind of got its start. So it's a somewhat newer technology, although fairly tried and true, I'd say at this point um, mm -hmm. and pretty well indicated um, what you use it for, when you use it, when it's appropriate and not. Um, but it's a very, what I would call precious um, gift in terms of being able to give out and they're fairly selective with um, who they put on it in terms of, just because by nature, um, it's an extremely resource intensive thing and it is kind of a limited quantity. So right. this is not something that is um, very low in terms of its resource use. Um, these people have to have either one nurse completely dedicated just to that patient or not, if not two nurses dedicated to that patient just to run everything. Um, okay. So it takes a lot of manpower to run and maintain these things. And there's a finite amount of what's called circuits, meaning the machine that actually runs it with all the tubing and everything, there's a finite number of those. So okay. for instance, the most we've ever had at one time is five people on this machine at once um, for a limited time run. Um, Barnes, for instance, which is a much, much bigger institute. So my hospital is like, I believe licensed for like 310 beds or something like that with mm -hmm. our average kind of census, meaning how many people are in the hospital at one given time usually ranging between 185 or so up to about 270 is mm. kind of our general range somewhere within there. Um, almost never getting up over the 300 mark. Um, mm. Barnes is, I believe licensed for some around almost 1600 beds. Mm -hmm. um, now, anybody that's ever spent any time on the Barnes campus knows that there is constantly a tower going up and a tower going down, uh, meaning they are constantly updating their system. Um, being that a lot of the buildings are over. So they're constantly doing um, projects of tearing down, you know, institutes that may have been built 50, 60 years ago mm. and building new buildings with a lot better capabilities and whatnot. Okay. So they have a lot more beds. They, um, the most I have heard them in use of um, on their COVID unit, for instance, was I believe 14 people cannulated on there. And then their cardiothoracic ICU <laughs> people for other reasons other than COVID um, was I believe seven or eight circuits. So, call it maybe 21 circuits that they could possibly run at one given time. And that was from my understanding, quite stretched quite thin on supplies, mm -hmm. um, 21 circuits. And we have gone up as high as five and it varies from Institute to Institute, but most institutes that are a little bit smaller only can have, you know, maybe one or two handfuls of these devices running at one given time. Mm -hmm. um, and by nature, these are not things that people usually go on for right. like a day. Um, especially in this context. So like I said before, flu people usually mm -hmm. two or three weeks. Um, 
in some of these COVID patients, um, what we are seeing is a very, very long road to recovery. And these people are having to stay on for um, what I would border on calling excruciating lengths of time. Mm -hmm. So maybe two months sometimes on this machine, if they can survive for that long um, on the machine. So I guess what I'm, the next thing to talk about is like, so you guys are, you know, fairly confident are very confident in the skills that you're applying on kind of a daily basis or a week to week basis in this unit. And then what, what was it like to go through the very beginning of, of like this, you know, it's on the horizon. Maybe you start hearing rumors or whatever, and you are approaching the situation, I presume with confidence, right? Like you, you, so uh, precautionary confident confidence i would say i don't think i um, was approaching this with a fair amount of confidence necessarily Mm -hmm. um and i don't think that anybody really was approaching it with too much confidence but Mm -hmm. you know as we start started hearing you know the rumblings about it um this virus causing you know a a flu if you will um for the most part is what it was causing severe respiratory distress like i said before um with the clinical guidelines not having changed much for acute respiratory distress we felt like we very, very much so know what we are doing in terms of tre- treating acute respiratory distress from the pulmonologists, infectious disease doctors, mm-hmm. ICU um, level um, practitioners, whether it be um, NPs, PAs, so nurse practitioners, physician assistants, or um, board certified critical care intensivists, meaning the primary ICU doctor in the ICU. Mm-hmm. This is something we were all very, very comfortable with. Um, and as this started evolving, um, uh, which I will get to, we quickly were finding out that our tried and true methods of caring for these people, um, the playbook um, quickly was being thrown out um, because the playbook um, going by the normal guidelines was not working. So going into this, we were all you know, cautiously, cautiously optimistic that things would be all right. Um, we go into or heading towards the point where we start deciding to lock down um, and really, um, at that point, um, we were seriously starting to crunch numbers, figure out where we could actually um, convert different areas. For instance, the post-anesthesia care unit where somebody that is going, you know, say for just a soldier surgery, wrist surgery, some minorly invasive surgery maybe um, goes and recovers after their surgery before they go up to a regular um, nursing floor, not in, instead of the ICU. Mm-hmm. Um, we were quickly figuring out how many of those we could convert to ICU beds, trying to figure out all of the materials and everything and kind of preparing for triaging and kind of a mass casualty type of sense with being overwhelmed with people. Um, and it was very surreal for me um, going into this, knowing so little, um, I can remember talking in January and February as everything got on the radar and having discussion with uh, a friend in particular and um looking at stuff and he's like, well, I think this will all blow over quite quickly. And I quickly was like, I think this is actually going to be quite bad. Um, and I don't think mm-hmm. this is going to be a quick over and out thing. Um, and uh, um, I started seeing more and more people around the hospital that we don't necessarily see all the time. For instance, our head of his infectious disease as we're getting ready to start receiving all this is coming making rounds um, down on our unit. Not that they doesn't they don't come down, but regularly coming down and rounding on our unit, trying to get everybody prepared. And the common theme throughout this is all these people that are extremely intelligent and practicing medicine for anywhere in the realms of five to, you know, 40 years um, practicing medicine or more. Um, 
these different doctors, you know, quite well versed in their area of expertise, um, all were fairly nervous. Um, and that was kind of the most unsettling thing going into this and not really knowing um, exactly what the deal was, because everything at that point, um, you know, we were starting from a very, very limited knowledge base of what this actually was. Mm-hmm. I can remember very early on the one of the first discussions was, is this an airborne disease or a primary just respiratory droplet carry disease? Um, mm-hmm. So what type of um, what we call in the hospital precautions do we need to be partaking? So um, we have standard precautions for different things to prevent the spread of different diseases. So some things can be what's called contact precautions, where um, these things can live on surfaces. If you go into into these rooms, you may wear a gown and gloves to protect yourself and you perform hand hygiene before um, putting on that stuff and after you take Mm -hmm. it off in order to minimize the risk of spreading these things. Um, Things like even just rhinovirus, actually, um, you would wear a typical surgical mask for or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, something that pretty much everybody's heard of at some point if you've worked in any capacity at the medical field or in a lot of other things, just getting ready for going to colleges is tuberculosis. So that is something that you would wear an N95 for um, to protect yourself from. So then the argument quickly became, what do we need to be doing to protect ourselves? And quickly, Mm -hmm. um, as you start watching clips from other countries, you are seeing everybody as Italy gets hit before us um, in full what's called papper suits. Um, So, you know, you know, layman's terms, the hazmat suits. So where these people are in a um, full suit that is completely closing them off and has a separate filtered air supply, um, triaging these people. Um, And from my perspective, we quickly um, are looking at that. And then the argument here as well is a regular surgical mask enough or do we need an N95s? And um, seeing everybody else being in full um, biohazard suits, you're like, ooh, well, this feels uh, severely <laughs> like I am lacking. Um, yeah, you know, for real. <laughs> knife, to a, knife to a gunfight uh, is the understate of the century there. Mm-hmm. Um, and quickly that became um, the issue. And then very quickly we uh, figured out that our stockpiles nationally were not um, ever restocked. Um, Uh, Not going into the political area of that, um, you can kind of chalk that up to kind of Tea Party movements maybe in the um, um, post-Ebola scenario where some of that stuff had been taken out of the national stockpiles and government um, cutting on spending was a big um, focus of some of the kind of administrations and uh, different groups in the Senate and whatnot at that point. And there was a big movement politically for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just one of those things that kind of fell through the cracks and didn't ever get replenished. Um, So we quickly found out we didn't have um, nearly the backstock of uh, materials that we'd have hoped for, as well as we found out at the local level that our hospitals don't have actually that much stockpile, Mm -hmm. uh, stockpiled of different things. we live in a very, very interconnected society that depends on the constant stream of stuff being shipped in, shipped out and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, and supplies regularly being delivered. Um, what exactly causes that? Hard to go into all the different metrics of that, but generally speaking, most places don't keep an inventory to run themselves on for several years at a time. Right. Um, just not feasible in some different aspects, and there's a lot that goes into that, but um, you know, it's not something where we had all of this stuff built up and had stockpiles that were going to last us for years and the amount of masks and different things we need. Right. Um, also noteworthy, generally speaking, um, 
how often did I use a mask um, in my general practice um, going into this? Um, honestly, an N95 was something I fairly infrequently wore. Um, mm-hmm. I would wear it for my yearly, yearly fit test. Um, or in some years, actually, because we use them so seldom, if I had a beard, um, it turns out having a large thing on your face that is in the way of the mask touching skin um, mm-hmm. means it won't seal. And it, it, it's it quite uh, futile to go ahead and fit test you if you have a beard. Mm-hmm. So in some years, I even skipped on that. Um, not yeah. that my face size had changed very much, but you can't uh, have a good seal with a mask um, with a beard. Mm-hmm. I happen to be running in a time where it's a little bit longer, although uh, it can no candle to Chris's in terms of <laughs> length and bushiness and whatnot and the integrity <laughs> that comes with all of that extra beard and the power and responsibility that he must not forget the responsibility, especially um, very um, powerful thing. So Brandon, uh, Brandon, it's, it's the beard on the inside that matters the most. <laughs> I'm not familiar with internal um, hairs other than ingrown ones. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell you those are painful. So, like I want to keep on this track, but I, I want to make sure we don't miss a couple of things that I'm thinking of, and it's and it's yeah, kind and of feel like... free to interrupt at any point if you've got a particular question on okay. a particular area. So I can ramble on quite quickly. I don't know. So so my my perspective on things is like if you want to participate in the discourse in society, you better be informed, right? That's just kind of my general rule thing, rule of thumb. So I take that like I don't know relatively seriously for whatever reason i'm and then the other thing is like okay so i'm kind of a i'm a shit poster right so what i'm sharing on social media continually is almost kind of like a barometer of whatever content is out there right so if there's a lot of memes about something i'm gonna be sharing a lot of memes about that now i'll throw my opinion in there and i've got plenty of opinions it's a problem but what i'll say is at the very beginning of this um you know, in our age group, we've kind of lived through, you know, bird flu, swine flu, Ebola, bird flu too, the electric boogaloo, you know, like all of these different, what could have exploded, but didn't. And, you know, it was very difficult to see COVID coming from, a, again, who am I? I'm just some dude on the internet in this context really difficult to see it coming as anything other than those other diseases, right? Uh, to the point where it's like, okay, people are making jokes about it. It's probably going to blow over. We don't know what to expect. And I was guilty of that too. Um, but to be uh, fair, going into this uh, early on, we were like, oh, is this something we're going to be dealing with for three weeks? Then it's going to go away like some of mm-hmm. these previous ones. Um, and to be fair, most of them, quite frankly, did go away very quickly. Right. Um, they did not have the propensity for replication that uh, COVID does. Yeah. And uh, um, I do feel like it's important to point out that like those things went away very quickly in the U.S. They yeah, did. Yeah, they yeah, had yeah. much longer, longer lasting effects in other countries. But I also felt yes. the same way. I when the stuff coming out about COVID was first coming out, I thought it was going to be a flu too. I I think a lot of people did. Yeah, I, I think we all didn't really, like, know the severity of it until it actually hit, you know. But then I guess my other question is kind of along those same lines, like, being in the hospital, you said, like, we're seeing videos of, you know, healthcare workers in Italy wearing these hazmat suits. Like, 
were that were you know what is the communication infrastructure when something like that happens like are you just supposed to go off this video that like they're wearing hazmat suits we better or are they uh, like well here's the thing uh chris actually um we started having these discussions like do we need to be wearing that and then quickly mm -hmm. finding out that we have nowhere near the number of those things to actually mm -hmm. dole out amongst our critical staff in the ICUs <laughs> to actually suit everybody up and everything, especially in a daily capacity. Mm -hmm. um, we quickly found out that those were not supplies that we had a large quantity of. Um, so actually um, was finding that we were very, very um, ill-equipped in terms of that, in terms mm -hmm. of protecting for ourselves. Um, and then on top of that, um, not knowing exactly how this transmitted, how long it could live on services and different things. Um, we kind of went through a different number of methods of like what we would do to sequester ourselves and everything mm -hmm. um, from a fair number of different um, extremes to people that didn't take very much precaution other than wearing maybe their N95, some eye protection, maybe a face shield um, and covering with a gown and gloves. But um, most people were not wearing full pappers just because we really did not have a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like I was saying before, in terms of like our mask usage, we really didn't use that many masks, you know, maybe occasionally I had the rhinovirus or something along those lines or um, and the flu people when they were early in the stages of flu where they were still infective, you know, wearing 95 with that or um, you know, whether it just be a regular surgical mask. So we really didn't wear a mask um, other than the context of um, we're very close to our cardiac OR people um, as they're constantly bringing patients out to us and everything. Mm -hmm. um, they all are wearing surgical masks, obviously in surgery, you know, <laughs> hence the term surgical mask. <laughs> so, but regular everyday nursing, I really didn't wear um, a whole lot of N95. Like I said, my usage was honestly, mostly every year, maybe once or twice a year, I would wear an N95. Mm -hmm. um, it really wasn't something we wear very often. And then surgical masks were, you know, spread throughout here and there. Most of our isolation that we would have, um, so precautions was just people that were something that was contact, whether it was uh, MRSA or a number of different bugs that spread on surfaces, but not really a lot of respiratory pathogens that we were too worried about, um, you know, pathologically passing on from one to another. Okay. So um, just the challenge of actually getting everybody enough masks in terms of surgical masks and N95s, um, quickly was realized it was going to be a problem as well as providing the, um, you know, face shields, eye protection and different things. Um, those were not things we had a lot of stock of. Mm -hmm. um, so we quickly found ourselves in a bit of a pickle, so to speak. Um, I can remember the day um, to this day, I can still remember the day that I received my N95. Yeah. That would be my new friend and companion for uh, roughly five months. Um, and that was, um, something that coming from the practice, um, in terms of evidence-based and whatnot, um, was what we'd refer to as disposable PPE, right. personal protective equipment that is disposable. So in, you know, previous times, maybe I would use the same N95, you know, several times for one day, um, with a patient or something, if they had tuberculosis or something like that, but it was more something that, you know, I threw on, um, before I went in the room and then I tossed it when I left, mm -hmm. um, I was then handed my new companion, the blue N95 from 3M. And um, we were about to embark on our friendship journey of five months. Um, so this was a lot of um, people in the hospital coming together, especially on the nursing side, friends and family. Mm -hmm. um, I had a really nice face shield that 
Um, somebody in one of our telemetry fours, her husband actually went to Home Depot, got plexiglass and then fitted it with foam, made this, made a very nice, actually very thick plexiglass um, face shield that actually held up quite well um, mm-hmm. that I rocked for quite a long time um, instead of this thinner disposable ones that we could then wipe down with wipes and different things. Um, and then eye protection, you know, you were reusing a lot of this stuff. Um mm-hmm. And that was a very big culture shock and just personally a giant shock to um, these things that were disposable um, were now okay to reuse. Um, and so Which... navigating that, that scape was a little bit strange. Um, we were handed a paper bag and told that we would keep it in this and it would be um, where it would stay, like for instance, in our lockers in days that we were not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever put anything in a paper bag, but the idea of keeping something like kosher, sterile, um, in terms of the parts that are going around your head being the bands, the elastic you're bands right. and stuff, from going into the mask where your face is going to be touching and you're going to be breathing, um, kind of difficult, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, so, And to uh, deal with the fact that the N95 was disposable, um, like everywhere else, um, we would get a surgical mask, you know, maybe for that day, that mm-hmm. would then cover mm-hmm. your N95 to keep it from getting soiled, um, as to, so to speak, um, to be able to keep reusing your N95. Right. And then people began coming up with different things, whether it was Tupperware that you would put it inside of um, with some holes drilled into it to be able to aerate. And then you could you know, set the elastic bands out to the side so they were not touching the inner medium. Um, and that's what you would maybe you know, have your friend uh, hang out in your locker on your off days. Yeah, so um, so, so the- that all was surreal. I was going to say, that, so that's, you, you'd consider that like kind of a breach of doctrine, right? Like what, you know, you are entirely, pre- yeah, you're prescribed that this is disposable. This thing is built to be used once and thrown away. And like, you know, who, I'm an ecologist, right? Conservationist don't like that mindset, but with medical stuff, that's what you just have to do a lot of the time, right? If something is soiled with some type of material or, you know, um, virus bacteria or whatnot that is possibly transmittable and could actually infect you yourself with it as the wearer of this Mm -hmm. um you don't really want to be um using that repeatedly right um so with also not knowing exactly who was going to get very sick with this in the beginning and everything um there was also another giant battle not just in figuring out how to protect ourselves at work um how do we protect our loved ones and family at home um and people Mm -hmm. went about that in a variety of different ways Somebody, um, I know some people were, if they had um, like an RV or like pull behind um, trailer or something like that, were actually like kind of like setting up shop at the hospital and living out of like a trailer, mm-hmm. um, like a, you know, RV trailer or something like that and not actually going home or, you know, having it set up at home and not going inside of home, the home and interacting with their families. Cause we didn't really know, um, does this live on clothing for days at a time um we really Mm -hmm. didn't know you know how long could this be on a particular surface what type of surfaces would it live on and um how it was eradicated in terms of different stuff you know obvious things like you know taking a torch to your clothing would probably safely uh get rid of any infective material um (laughs) But uh, <laughs> short of that, we weren't entirely sure of the scope of what we needed to do to protect ourselves from that. So um, all of us kind of uh, adopted our own routines um, 
my um, fiance and I were in a condo at the same at the time living together. So um, at first, actually at the hospital, if you were um, dealing with COVID patients, so um, quickly the medical ICU filled up and then more acute cases that needed further um, care in terms of getting on ECMO would only be taken care of down in our areas because we were the only ones trained for those machines and whatnot. But um, we started out with getting uh, the green scrubs you see, if you've ever been in um, the hospital for surgery, the OR teams mm -hmm. in most places where whether it be green at my hospital or blue down at Barnes or whatnot, um, the surgical scrubs. So we would come in every morning and get a set of surgical scrubs. We would change out of our um, scrubs that we wore to work and then work in those clothes all day. And then at the end of the day, we would swap out of those things. I already had a dedicated set of shoes, for instance, that I wore. Um, and then, um, you know, maybe a disposable surgical cap that you would tie onto your head at the start of the day. And then you would put your buddy, your N95 back in your locker um, for the night and swap back out to your street clothes and then go home. Mm -hmm. um, that was not something that was kept up for that long. I feel like it was kept up for maybe a couple of months. Um, and then quickly, uh, whether it was cost-based mm -hmm. or from this perspective of, as we were looking, we didn't think it was really transmitting on clothing that much being more of an airborne process right. as we quickly were evolving. Um, and the way that we cared for people quickly um, changed as well. Mm -hmm. As we started with the trial and error um, of medicine in a new disease, uh, we started treating these people like we typically would have with the flu people um, and they were doing poorly quite poorly. Um, and that, that setting of, uh, using your, the playbook and then finding out the playbook, um, the other team already had the playbook and had all of our plays memorized, so to speak. Um, you know, if you're looking at the football sense of it, um, they already knew what, what every play we were going to call was and how to counter that the virus in terms of COVID itself was yeah. doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, so our playbook did not work. You know, we, at, at first, um, with people I can remember, um, as people started getting on to, um, you know, starting on a little bit of action and going up, um, we thought the, you know, best practice was going to be, um, like with acute respiratory distress syndrome, to put in a breathing tube early and get these people on mm -hmm. a ventilator um, to kind of protect their lungs. We actually found out that was not the best method to care for these people. And actually, that was to some people's detriment. Um, but we quickly saw the actual scientific process unfolding before our very eyes. And that we would try different things and then quickly learn that the results were not showing um, that these methods were working. So we would have to try different things. Right. So, um, I mean, not to interrupt, but I'm just saying like, so that you're trying what previous knowledge would tell you is, is going to work and then it's not working. And not just knowledge, but evidence, you know, mm -hmm. you're talking about extremely large numbers of not not just like individual case studies, but large overall um, research, non-randomized trials, different things to narrow down the scope of what you do to an acute respiratory distress person, um, how you care for them, what the best things to do. Um, and like I said, the guidelines, which are updated as new information comes out and you may see that, you know, certain things actually have much better clinical outcomes, whatnot. These are not guidelines that we're updating, had not updated for, you know, maybe 10 years at this point or more because there had been no recent developments in these areas okay. in terms of we had a tried and true playbook and it was very straightforward how you took care of these people. Mm -hmm. um, that playbook did not work for, for COVID. Okay. Um, so we quickly found that we were having to um, change our care and it rapidly evolved what the, um, what we would call standard of um, care was for these people. 
So, mm-hmm. and, and seeing that unfold kind of before your eyes was kind of shocking, you know, um, to see most, and most medical syndromes, we really, for the most part, know what we're doing and it's got a pretty tried and true playbook. And then to quickly start seeing everybody, um, collectively shoulder shrugging, um, kind of as to what the deal was here, you know, this was not, um, our typical flu that we, um, do, and I wouldn't say love, but we're at least comfortable with um, right. in terms of how to take care of these people. So we quickly found ourselves up shit creek, so to speak, and um, seeing all these different people that have been practicing medicine for many years, you know, whether it be pulmonologists, you know, um, or infectious disease doctors. Um, and, you know, every time you saw these people, you'd ask, you know, kind of how, how are things going as they'd round on our unit? Or what are you seeing? And um, typically the response was, uh, this is crazy. This is insane. Um, we're throwing the entire book at these people and, um, you know, throwing everything, including the kitchen sink at these people and nothing's working. Mm -hmm. Um, and seeing collectively all these extremely knowledgeable people in the medical field that, um, were kind of like, I've, I'm trying everything and nothing's working, um, was extremely terrifying, really. It's, uh, just does a number on, you know, kind of everybody's psyche to not know what we're going to do. And mm-hmm. um, facing that in the front line was very crazy, just very surreal um, from my prior experience in the medical would, field. Would you so, say, would you say that you guys, you know, it was kind of like smaller numbers and it built up or like, did you guys just get hammered right from the beginning in terms of the number of people? So um, the medical ICU started filling up decently quickly, but not, um, kind of, and the nature of, you know, COVID as we saw very early on was the more densely populated areas where people Mm -hmm. were close together, you know, take for instance, Italy being hit before us where, you know, people live quote unquote on top of each other, um, and very Mm -hmm. close quarters, um, is where this replicated very well. So, you know, um, in typical fashion here, it kind of started down in the inner city areas where people live closer together and whatnot. So it, and by nature hit the hospitals that are closer to downtown first, you know, at first we were getting some stuff, but it really wasn't too crazy. We were kind of lagged a little bit behind some of the hospitals in the city, so to speak. Okay. And then stuff started coming up, you know, sort of more quickly and, you know, keeping in mind these things, um, in the time that country shut down for a couple of weeks, so to speak. Um, my drive to work has significantly improved in terms of time, although I almost wish I had a little more time to dread driving in uh, on those mornings oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were also, we had stopped doing elective surgeries as well. Um, and we're only doing emergent uh, cases at that point as well in order to prepare for an influx of people. Um, so that was also kind of strange because being a surgical area, Um, Most of what we rely on is surgery patients. Um, Mm -hmm. And as the um, COVID patients were ramping up in terms of their number and everything, um, seeing them um, popping into the hospital, um, our units weren't, our unit down in the surgical area was not full yet. And we were trying to, um, in the best practice, keep our ICU clean, so to speak. Meaning that anybody that was not um, sick with COVID was staying down in our area and the medical ICU, we were keeping that a dedicated unit just for people that were ICU sick, um, but were positive for COVID. Um, So keeping the people that, for instance, you know, may have lung cancer that needed a lobectomy. These people were not what we would call elective cases. 
um, or open heart surgery where somebody has completely clogged arteries in their heart and needs open heart surgery. Um, those are not what I would call by any means elective surgeries. These are cases that cannot be delayed. So they were more on the emergent side. So those cases still had to go on. Um, but those cases actually slowed down as could well. Could you could you talk a little bit about the mindset behind that? Um, I think, you know, I'm not even sure. Like, so I understand some of the concepts, but I think, again, you know, it's because I was raised by a nurse. But I think a lot of people struggle with understanding that why those electoral elective procedures would be canceled or pushed off into the future and how that system works in terms of why, you know, it's not just the first order effects of taking COVID seriously in terms of like your personal health, your friends, your family, but it's the second and third of somebody can't get a surgery that they need when they'll yes. die. Or... Um, so like I said, emergent surgeries was still going on. What qualified as emergent surgery was, um, you know, up to debate, but, you know, certain things you could not um, wait for, you know, they were saying stuff that didn't, wasn't urgently needed within 90 days is kind of the recommendations that they were coming out with for holding mm -hmm. those surgeries. So if you had a bad rotator cuff, um, bad news, that was not getting replaced. Um, now, why was this? So for one, this was replicating fairly fast and going through the general populace. Um, so, as we were getting screening methods to actually test people for COVID and everything, um, we also saw a, an alarming trend, um, which was um, false negative tests. So um, until the testing methods were better, um, sometimes you would swab somebody for COVID and whether it was poor technique on the operator's part or um, bad sample medium in terms of the testing materials, um, the actual method through which they were doing these PCR tests, um, the actual quality of the materials, et cetera. Um, we were having a fairly high number of people that were falsely negative, meaning that we would um, test them to see if they had COVID and they would be negative. And then, you know, um, if you didn't have any reason to believe that they had COVID, then you would go ahead and do stuff with them. Well, part of the process, if you're going and getting elective surgery, most surgeries um, require non-conscious sedation. So what that means is that they will give you um, anesthetics, um, stuff to make you sleepy, and then they'll put in a breathing tube. Um, the process of putting in a breathing tube into somebody um, has a high chance of aerosolization, aerosolization of particles. So infective particles, meaning like basically your respiratory droplets. So, you know, you wake up the morning, cough up some gunk, that type of stuff. Um, when you put a breathing tube down into somebody's lungs, um, generally speaking, you give them sedation and some paralytics when you're doing that, but there's a chance that they cough. And when you are stimulating directly down in the lungs, they, you know, up into the air um, mm -hmm. with those particles. So you have, for one, the risk that they actually are spreading that to the, to the providers um, in terms of the anesthesiologists and uh, CRNAs that are actually putting these breathing tubes in, um, exposing these people as well as the rest of the OR team when you're doing that, um, these aerosolizing procedures um, and possibly you know, causing harm to the people taking care of them um, and spreading it, um, that was a big concern. So that was one of the reasons why they were holding off on elective procedures. Um, and one of the things also with elective procedures is um, sometimes like many things in life, things don't always go as planned and go smooth. So sometimes you may go in um, to have an elective procedure, get an elbow operated on shoulder, knee, et cetera, et cetera, some type of you know um, surgery. And you, um, for whatever reason, did not know that there was maybe something going on with your heart, 
like a valve or something like that, or um, that you maybe had a blood clot in your leg that we that um, you hadn't had any outward symptoms of or something. And then you can um, go under anesthesia and in those settings, you could end up getting very sick. Um, so a lot of times that's sometimes the patients that we would see is they'd go and have surgery and they'd find that they had another problem that, you know, wasn't outwardly visible um, prior to surgery in their workup or anything. You know, maybe they had a, a heart problem that became quickly apparent once they were under anesthesia. Um, you know, some of that stuff ends up in the ICUs. So um, by nature, if you were having all these elective cases, inevitably some of those people will end up in the ICU mm -hmm. through no fault of their own or anybody else's necessarily. Um, things will come up and they'll need to go to the ICU. Well, as we're getting these influx of patients, um, we need places for patients to actually be. So there needs to be a bed for that patient, a nurse to take care of them, a doctor to take care of them as well. Um, these people need people to be able to actually care for them. So if your surgery is not something that is like imminently um, emergent, it's much safer at that point for those people not to be getting surgery um, and to leave our beds you know, open in expectation of a critical influx of patients with COVID. So that is something we um, were preparing for um, as the cases started rising. And really at the very beginning, we were just worried at the rate that it was replicating that we were gonna be totally overwhelmed. Um, it, it, it is not distant, too, too distant of a memory, um, different areas having tents set up outside to have patients triaged in and patients being cared for out in tents in different hospitals during extreme influxes and overflows. Um, you know, you really want your patients inside the hospital, inside the ICU if they're that sick, um, you know, in the best environment possible to give them the best chance of doing well and surviving. Mm -hmm. um, so as we were finding this influx of people, um, quite frankly, all of the resources were being dedicated um, mostly to people that were emergently sick with COVID mm -hmm. um, as they were taking up beds. You know, the last thing you want to do is have somebody come in for a shoulder surgery and then end up taking an ICU bed or get them, you know, near these um, other COVID patients or have something in the case where they go in for surgery and somehow end up catching it through the process of coming into the hospital. Right. Um, and then getting sick with that on top of having other things going right. on. So that's kind of the reason why we were limiting our, our elective cases and stuff um, yeah. in preparation for, and then as we were dealing with this large influx of people. Awesome. I mean, I, I really appreciate that explanation because, you know, that was one of those weaponized pieces of information that like a lot of people didn't, didn't seem to understand, you know? So <laughs> one of the, uh, more entertaining uh, things looking back now was that people were adamant that the hospitals weren't busy because the parking lots were empty. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I don't know how many hospitals these people had been to. I don't know if they've ever been inside, but the patients uh, usually don't drive themselves to the hospital when they're critically ill. Um, if you've ever seen somebody in a very bad car accident, usually an ambulance comes and takes that person to the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. Patients don't necessarily arrive by driving themselves all the time, especially when they're critically ill. So um, the status of how many cars are in the parking lot was um, oftentimes more indicative of the number of people visiting that day, as well as all the tertiary staff of the hospital. Um, and there was another thing that quickly developed in our society, which was working from home. Um, so non-critical staff that did not, to be on, not need to be in person, especially when we were in a short shortage of uh, personal protective equipment and whatnot. Um, if you had people that could do their job remotely, 
there was not much benefit to them really coming up to the hospital and, you know, taking up resources and exposing each other possibly to something that could be easily passed on as we found. Um, so the hospital parking lots were fairly empty, just like the roads were fairly empty at the time. Um, right. But the parking lot's never been a good indicator for how many beds are full in the hospital. Um, and neither will I, what I say, is it going to continue to be that um, mm-hmm. it's, it's really funny. You, you find that um, also in this time, because we were so strapped for resources and whatnot and trying to keep people from getting sick or either getting patients sick or getting family members sick. We also cut off visitors um, right. for patients in the hospital. And um, that was simultaneously like one of the most heartbreaking things to deal with um, from our side and in both um, perspectives from patients, families, patients, you know, a lot of people really rely on their support system for support in times of, you know, dire need and critical illness and whatnot. So not having your family there to see you during all this, um, that's actually a lot of the cars in the parking lot during the day in a hospital. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to the hospital and, check the parking lot at noon when all of the administrative staff is in there, tertiary staff, everything that's operating during the day and visitors are all there. And then you come at three in the morning, you'll find the parking lots a quite different situation. Although there are still a large number of people working in the hospital in terms of doctors and nurses. And that number is fairly constant. Um, You know, there's different things like ancillary services, consult services that aren't in house at night. You know, for instance, maybe the nephrologist isn't in there at night, different things that operate during the day aren't there, but less staff, but um, the hospital's busyness, so to speak, was not necessarily indicative of how busy the hospital was. Yeah, right. that's, that's a great point. And, and if you think about it, it, it only makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was, that was an interesting argument to see. Go to your local hospital, look in their parking lot and see how many patients they have. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't, don't, is, don't uh, trust anybody who says otherwise. Go and see for yes. yourself. And it's like, well, man, like everyone always either came by ambulance or got shoved out of an Uber, man. Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of these people were getting critically, critically ill very quickly. So these people were sometimes being dropped off by family members to the ER or oftentimes were coming in by mm-hmm. ambulance. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of these people with a, you know, um, respiratory pathogen that <laughs> in this pandemic that were acquiring this were not planning to come to the hospital. Right. They were very acutely coming to the hospital. So they're not like driving themselves and planning a couple nights stay. It's not like going to the Hilton head or <laughs> <laughs> the Drury Inn, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a similar concept would be if we were a bit better interconnected city with a better public transit system. Um, the number of people in the local parking garages um, for say a game down at the enterprise center or at Bush stadium or whatnot, the total number of cars directly in that area does not necessarily correlate to the total number of people participating, whether they're taking the Amtrak or whatnot, carpooling, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, you can't directly make a one-to-one correlation of uh, the number of people there and the number of cars. So um, just right. like the hospital, you may not be able to, indicate on that because there are other modes of transportation like i said public transit um, right. in this instance looking at that example um so there's the easily flawed logic in that um sort of looking at it exactly mm-hmm. i don't want to draw this point out too much more but um like you know st louis for a city of its size has pretty poor public transit and still <laughs> a lot of poor. yeah and, and still a lot of people take public transit to say sports games um oh yeah 
I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to be a downer, but uh, my mom was pretty ill in late 2019. And there was no public transit service to where she was staying. But if there was, I would not have been like, per se, uh, carpooling with people. I would have been taking public transit. Now, I was carpooling, so that's not a car added to the lot. So, but you get my point, right? If if there were if they were able to access these things through transportation, you would see those numbers in the lot dwindle. That's not mm-hmm. indicative of anything. Yes, mm-hmm. right. Um, it's an indicative of the number of cars in the parking lot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it, you know, um, things like that, and quickly, that one of the worst things about this was the sudden shift and and complete um, mistrust from a lot of people in the public to um, people in the healthcare scape. Um, for whatever reason, as you know, looking at social media, different things, interconnectedness, um, access to information and stuff, um, conspiracy stuff has really bloomed a lot over the last you know say 25 Mm -hmm. years since the internet's really gotten more popular and this um idea of distrust um and different people um really actually on the Mm -hmm. from the healthcare side was very depressing actually um seeing people just didn't trust that um um you know generally speaking people you know the any particular field that people can make a good living at you know there's always going to be somebody that goes into something for money but the large portion of people that go into healthcare, myself included, um, my goals for what I wanted to do with myself was to do something that would, you know, positively impact others and feel like I made a real difference um, in the world. Not that Mm -hmm. everything doesn't, you know, make their own, its own difference and everybody has their part that contributes to society, obviously. Um, But I really liked the feeling of, you know, helping people getting better um, and having that impact on people. And uh, I specifically chose surgical medicine because of the propensity for the patients. They come in, they get surgery. Generally speaking, they get better and they go home. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really like to see. Um, certain different areas of medicine, um, you know, are a little bit more doom and gloomy um, in terms of their setting. You know, people, you know, in for, for instance, palliative care and hospice that you're taking care of people and trying to give them dignity and quality of life at the end of their life, you know, that type of thing. Um, generally speaking, my area of medicine, as well as all my colleagues that worked in the surgical ICUs, uh, really our bread and butter. And what we really liked doing was people getting surgery for whatever was ailing them um, and then helping them get better and get out of the hospital and back to their lives with their family. Mm -hmm. Um, And all these doctors that spend tens of years in uh, getting to the point of practicing, you know, for instance, our cardiothoracic surgeons that put in these ECMO devices, um, these are people that are not completely done with all of their training and everything till their early thirties. So these right. are people that start out, go to their four year, get their four year degree done, go to medical school, then go through their residency, their fellowship, and then further specializing into these special areas of surgeries and going into additional fellowships for that and training, mm-hmm. going all over the country, wherever they can get into fellowship programs. Um, you're talking about some of these doctors aren't getting done until they're, you know, 32, 33, 34. Um, in some cases, um, for very highly specialized areas of medicine, um, you know, I think that it's pretty safe to say these people are not like spending that much of their life, um, dedicating themselves to that cause without, you know, wanting to help people. Um, I don't, I can't imagine somebody dedicating that length of time just purely for a monetary standpoint without the, the amount of sacrifice you have to go through to like get through these long-term programs to get to these lengths in the person 
little sacrifices and the amount of time you have to put in an effort. Um, this is not something you can just coast through by any means. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people dedicate a lot of time to get to the, where they are in the medical field, um, specifically to help people. Um, you know, much like any area of care, you know, veterinary medicine, for instance, these, you know, people spend a lot of time and money to get themselves to the level of where they can practice um, in order to make a positive impact. Um, mm -hmm. And very quickly, um, the public, um, some areas of the public, obviously, um, you know, the majority of people, you know, you talk to or very supportive and, you know, very grateful for what you're doing and whatnot. But there's a whole subset of the populace that is, you know, thinks that we're all um, in some big organized uh, capacity duping right. for our monetary gain. And I, I'll tell you what, if there was um, a check that was supposed to be cut, I never received it. And I um, would still like to receive it if it is out there. <laughs> But, um, Soros, there was no listening. Uh, it, well, the funniest yeah. thing was <laughs> this idea of coordinated effort on the part of like multiple Just nations like saying ever <laughs> yeah um i don't know if anyone's ever participated in any form of local government perhaps trying to get a pothole fixed in your neighborhood or um deal with any number of problems on the mm -hmm. local level um if anybody's experienced that but um organizing anything that takes a collective um doesn't is quite an effort and a lot yeah, of times doesn't yeah, yeah, have you guys uh, ever done uh, a, a uh, high school group project <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh somebody yeah. always coasts and you or somebody else always mm -hmm. does a lot of the work um and just getting people's schedules lined up and whatnot um and uh we as the people like to gossip mm -hmm. generally mm -hmm. speaking um and and uh, secret <laughs> secrets are no fun unless you share them with everyone, apparently. Um, the idea that on a, on a grand scale, you know, just for instance, here in the regional area from here, probably within, you know, you draw a 50 mile radius around the area, drop a pin down at the gateway arch, mm -hmm. you know, the 15 different uh, medical institutes there, the thought that you could coordinate um, different things. For instance, Barnes Jewish, I believe, has roughly 32,000 employees. Um, mm -hmm. to, to coordinate anything on any level and keep everybody having the story straight. You, we've all as children, I'm sure, played the game of telephone right? Um, and quickly see how a message you know, sent can quickly distort and everything. The idea that anything could be kept at a large scale, coordinated effort to like keep everything hush-hush and not have anything meaningful leak is, to me, it's just so mind-boggling that even the, the amount of... Uh, steps you have to take uh just outside the realm of normal possibility yeah. just leaves me aghast well so i mean this is a perfect springboard to some other things i wanted to talk to you about i mean i'm gonna make a disclosure here that like if you know me personally you, you probably know my politics so i'm not gonna get into them here um so <laughs> i just want to make a declarative statement but uh just kind of like um let's let's talk about some of these like conspiracies misinformation and like critical thinking media literacy like this is something i'm i'm really realizing the need for um and you kind of like expect people to do better and and part of that again you know like i've had to explain this to several people where you know you can't blame people for necessarily not knowing something, right? Um, they might not have had the same opportunities, the same education. They might have learning disabilities, right? You can't, you know, 
talk down on people for just not knowing things or not understanding things. But when it gets to the point of like, again, like I said before, you know, if you want to participate in societal dialogue and discourse, like you better be informed, right? It's your responsibility to be informed. And this kind of like spreading of misinformation and early on, as you said, like, anti-healthcare worker sentiment is just the strangest thing that i saw where it was like scrambling for any kind of you know and part of it i guess i'm rambling my my fault but part of it i guess you know people looking for some sense of control or that it's going to be okay can explain some of this this. something to point a finger to is something people often just really want um Mm -hmm. and the unknown is scary And I think that's really what drove a lot of it. Um, The idea that all these people that were experts and whatnot, um, you know, in their respective fields um, and the medical community, having this sense of unknown and the dread of the unknown that we don't actually know what's going on. And I think people are often driven to conspiracy out of um, lack of understanding of something and, and fear of the unknown. And it's easier to, process things in a more simplistic manner that this is all, you know, derivative, it's all set out, everything is planned and whatnot, um, and that everything is already known. Um, Mm -hmm. The notion that uh, the world all over, with all of its vast um, materials in terms of the excellent physicians and different stuff, researchers and everything, not really knowing um, early on what was going on with this stuff, how to treat it and whatnot, um, really, it's a terrifying notion um, that we've evolved so far in medicine over the last couple hundred years, even just 50, 20 years, you know, to things that used to be an immediate death sentence. You know, you look back at historical figures um, and, and families, the family scape over the last couple hundred years, you know, um, often it was the practice to have like seven or nine children because half of them died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the medical advances over the last hundred years, especially. Um, you know, looking at smallpox, polio vaccines, different things that um, kept you from the uh, erosion of number of children you had, you know, the necessity to have more children because, you know, inevitably um, half of them wouldn't make it to age 10, sometimes age three or two. Um, mm-hmm. And then the propensity for people to have multiple wives because childbirth was absolutely grueling and had a fairly high mortality rate for mm-hmm. a long period of time before modern medicine. Um, and to still, like, some extent, um, still can have a somewhat high rate, you know, the instances of people dying over easily preventable stuff, um, just is not nearly, at least in the first world countries, you know, obviously need to specify, mm-hmm. um, in good first world countries with good medical systems, um, people are able to overcome things that very easily were a death sentence 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion that we've come all this way and then we're at a point where we don't know um, how we're going to overcome these different things um, is very scary mm-hmm. um, that we can't, you know, we had very little in our arsenal to fight with. Um, and I think that's very dissettling for a lot of people, myself included. I mean, it was terrifying um, for a lot of us you know, from that perspective of not knowing what we were going to do. Um, you know, I talked earlier about your personal protective equipment and stuff. Uh, we're using that, and, you know, everybody's ritual for what you were doing to protect your family as well. Um, you know, that was very all, all unsettling for us and stuff that I think a lot of people just didn't see from the outside as right. well. Yeah, absolutely. 
But um, I mean, like, are there, you know, like, <laughs> I'm trying to tiptoe around ways to say this, but like, education, man, we've, we've got to get people educated, we've got to get basic science literacy, you know, like one of my, <clears throat> like, favorite conspiracy theories from all of this was like where did all the flu deaths go you know and it was like okay hold on let's think about it what 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 is the flu okay so it's a virus how is it spread spread through aerosolized droplets right um what do we do to prevent that like okay so if you prevent the spread of those droplets you prevent the spread of the disease largely Okay, so what 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 do we do for COVID? Oh wow, COVID's a virus spread by aerosolized droplets. So people were social distancing and wearing masks, preventing the spread of those droplets. Wow, look, that works for both of those things, right? But I I just you know, it, it, it's hard. One one and one <laughs> together to make two, right? Right. Yeah. If I can oh. jump in here for a second. Something about that is that that's not really a conspiracy theory that I don't think a lot of people genuinely believe. That ties back to how the entire uh, situation around COVID became politicized, right? I don't want to go too deep into the actual politics of it, but I don't think that's one that like people genuinely believe. That's kind of an argument and a talking point to battle in like a political fight. Oh, it was it was political, but plenty of people did believe that, like that it was all just, to, you know, again, we're not going to go deep into politics here, but it was, you know, all manipulated to make somebody look bad. And the way to do that was that you're attributing these deaths that are from the flu to COVID. And there's also that was also tied into the. Uh, they're getting paid for this conspiracy. Sure. So. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to address the the paid front as well. Um, the hi, how you doing? Um, in the medical field, uh, during all this time, I can recall um, getting to that point that year was um, quickly we found that um, our yearly raises were going to be held. Um, some different benefits were going to be cut. We got our four hundred one ks, pensions, and stuff all paused. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of our contributions and stuff, actually, largely a lot of healthcare people um, saw a decline in their compensation or failure to keep up with inflation during this time, or losing some different benefits of their total package, like in terms of their four hundred one k and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And now, why was that? Um, was it just the hospitals out to making money or something, you know, nefarious? Um, well, the the thing is that um, the way our hospital systems work is. Um, people that are in and out of the hospital fairly quickly, like say for these elective surgeries that we were talking about earlier that we had suddenly stopped, um, that was where a large portion of the money for the hospital was made. You were compensated X amount for this procedure for someone to go through. This person comes in, they get this procedure done. They may go home this that same day or maybe the next day. Um, that's where a lot of the money does come in through hospitals, mm-hmm. different tertiary services, people going and see their specialists and stuff like that, the daily operations of the hospital outside of the area of the ICU um, is really where a large portion of the money comes into the hospital, quite frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you suddenly screech all of that to a halt, and then there's some other things that you're doing at this time simultaneous. Um, 
suddenly those masks that I told you about that I only wore a couple times, you know, every year, mm -hmm. um, we're now wearing a surgical mask at all times in the hospital. Um, if you were caring for these um, COVID patients, um, you were then donning an N95, a surgical mask, some type of glasses or goggles or a face shield, and then a hairnet and then a gown and gloves and whatnot. Or sometimes in some cases you're wearing a pepper, um, the full entire like biohazard style suit that um, has mm -hmm. a filter on it and, you know, cleans the air that's coming into there for you. Um, that stuff costs money as it turns out. Um, all that stuff's not free. And the hospitals are suddenly going through orders of magnitude higher of those supplies than we ever have. And something else that I, I'd like, you know, I'll touch on real quickly is that um, the people getting COVID um, are very, very resource intensive patients in terms of the amount of time you're dedicating to them, the amount of equipment and different stuff, you know, the personal protective equipment you're wearing, you know, all of that stuff consumes a lot of supplies. Mm -hmm. um, and these people are going through this stuff and that stuff that you don't necessarily like um, through medical billing and coding, you don't necessarily charge for, you don't. Um, there's no way to like, for me, like to select that I used two masks, for instance, there's no like area in my charting or my daily routine that I like check off on how many masks I use when I took care of this right. person or something. That's like incidental costs of, you know, healthcare kind of is what mm. that's viewed mm -hmm. at by all the medical building and coding side of things. You know, that's operations cost, not something that's directly charged to patients. So um, the fact that now everybody has to have surgical masks, every doorway that you're coming into has boxes of surgical masks there. Everybody's wearing these and these are the surgical masks, generally speaking, you were swapping out every day, you know, mm -hmm. or if something happened and, um, you know, the one of the more unfortunate things that could happen to you is while you were gowned up and all this stuff and you were in a COVID room, um, is that you sneeze. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't know if you've ever sneezed into a closed system, um, like your hands and totally snotted your hands. Mm. Um, well, replace that with a mask that is uh, on your face. Yeah, it's um, unpleasant. Well, needless to say, if it's soiled with your snot, it's not really good to use. So, right. you know, um, everybody that has worn a mask for any length of time at, during all this has at one point or another probably snotted a mask and you quickly learn that mask is not so good to use. Yes, yes gross. Um, <laughs> it's disgusting, unsanitary, whatnot. Um, <laughs> the worst part is that, uh, you know, if I was going into a COVID room and saying I was going to be in there for an hour and a half, you would dread if you had to sneeze and try to make sure you did not actually sneeze and hold it in, uh, hoping mm. that you didn't burst uh, an artery in your skull and, <laughs> and bleed out into your brain. So um, feel, feel free, free not, not to, to answer, answer this, this question, question but, but what, what did you have? have so, so what, what do you do, do with the, uh, uh, your, your five-month five companion N95 mask when you had to sneeze? So that one was lucky enough that I just held my seizures in and I hoped that I hadn't have a what I would call a, what's called a berry aneurysm, which is a uh -huh. mal uh, malformation of an artery that is collecting blood and, and it's something that's ready to burst oh, in your boy. brain and bleed out quickly from your arterial system. Um, hope that I didn't have one of those because the intracranial pressure of you holding a sneeze actually yeah. is kind of high. So it's not like something that generally speaking happens, but you know, you just kind of hold it um, and hope you don't sneeze like prohibitively into that, uh, into my buddy. Now I was nice enough not that's to snot all my buddy. Um, no, I can say my uh, daily acquaintances, so to speak, the surgical masks, uh, we're not so lucky in that same fate. There was more than a few of those that have uh, fallen casualty to the, to the snots over the past year and a half. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, uh, funny enough, talking about my friend, um, also the, the scramble that we had because we didn't have enough of these things was uh, 
how long can we use these in perpetuity um, that are supposed to be non-reusable um, and how do we clean them? Right. That was another thing that was very interesting um, and seeing, um, you know, having access to different uh, databases for medical journals and stuff and looking at infective um, journals and stuff, looking at how they were trying to figure out how to get rid of um, COVID-19 particles, you know, live attenuated um, particles of infective material. How do you get that stuff off of a disposable item without compromising the integrity of that disposable item? Um, so there's different things you could do. So what they were actually doing at, at one point in time, I did not participate in this um, because I was a bit wary of it. Um, was that now obviously in this time frame, if for some reason something happened to your buddy, like an elastic strap broke, it wasn't like they were like, okay, here's a staple. Um, you know, if, if like the strap broke or something, they were going to procure you another N95, but you were encouraged not to, you know, use them because we were worried we would legitimately run out of these mm -hmm. and then having to start using makeshift stuff. And, you know, we really did not want to subject ourselves to getting sick with this new disease that we didn't know that much about. And we're having trouble caring for people with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so they were processing them. Um, and I think basically putting them in an oven, like a, I don't remember what temperature, but for a certain number of hours and subjecting them to a little bit higher heat um, for a sustained period. And I figured that that would, um, had figured out through testing, you know, that that would make them have non uh, viable replicative material of the virus um, on them. Um, as well as other things that were being studied was UV light therapies. There's a certain wavelength of spectrum. I believe it's uh, UVC spectrum, which yeah, I yeah, cannot UVC. remember the exact um, frequency, um, you know, what, what wavelength exactly it was. I actually did the research at one point in time, diving through the medical journals when they were tr first trying to find out what we can do to subject um, these materials um, to it um, to make sure that the ma infective material on them would not be able to be viable material to infect somebody else or yourself with. Um, so that was something we looked into as well. Um, but the, the thing that we were finding when they were testing these masks with exposure to UVC light um, was degradation of the mask. So um, subjecting them to UV light, UV light is harsh, which is why it would kill COVID-19 particles, um, you know, it would kill the live infective material of the virus. Um, also, it was, you know, hard on the mask itself. So mm -hmm. degradation of the, you know, paper material that it's made out of, um, as well as really what the biggest problem was, I was finding in a lot of the, the tests these were, they were performing in these um, journal articles is they were having um, the integrity of the elastic straps was mm -hmm. really suffering with UV light. So, um, and you know, the last thing you want to do when you were in, you know, one of those patients room, maybe you're performing a bronchoscopy where we take a camera, go down the lungs and, you know, can flush them out or just take a look to see what is going on in them. Um, that oftentimes is aerosolizing and spraying stuff into the air, um, is that your snap on your, uh, strap on your mask snaps yes. off and your mask snaps. just falls off. Mm -hmm. Um, so obviously we did, we ended up not going the UV, um, route, um, and actually UV, um, disinfection actually is a kind of evolving area in terms of cleaning hospitals, actually ORs are installing powerful UV lights that they will turn on for extended lengths of time during cleaning phases and different stuff. They have portable UV light machines that they can actually transport around the hospital. They're prohibitively effective, but they're extraordinarily effective at killing different bacteria and viruses. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, not trying to delve into the, uh, the escape of, uh, antibiotic resistant or multi-drug resistant bacterias and 
viruses and whatnot, you know, stuff that's resistant to our normal methods of treatment, um, mm-hmm. finding ways to get rid of that stuff, um, you know, is, is very important going forward in medicine. But that was one of the things that we were faced with was, okay, well, we're going to have to reuse this thing. How do we best keep from infecting ourselves or other people with this um, non-reusable product and also keep the integrity of the product intact? Right. Um, so that was an interesting um, predicament. Um, that so my um, methodology for what I did was I put mine in my um, you know Tupperware box. It's home, and then we put it in my locker. And my thought process was, especially as we were going further on, we found that it most likely was not able to survive on a paper material for more than a certain number of hours. Maybe it was twenty four, forty eight hours. Mm-hmm. And you know, if I was not returning for work for several days, that. I figured anything that was, you know, able to be replicating on it at that point would die out uh, any infected material. So mm-hmm. that was my um, method that I went with was just time, um, mm-hmm. the enemy of us all, um, <laughs> so to speak. But um, I, I left mine uh, to dwell, as you would say, in its mm-hmm. uh, home in my locker and, you know, hope that it, by the time I returned that it had, uh, no longer would have any particles that were. Um, also, there is obviously a particular technique to putting these um, items on and what they call donning and doffing PPE, um, how you put on and take it off in order to not contaminate it. Um, so a specific sequence of how you take that stuff on and off to keep from contaminating it. So through all those different methods, you know, we were able to keep these, um, so to speak, disposable items going for quite some time. Um, it's no longer the practice that we're, you know, reusing them for a long period of time. If I'm in a COVID room for one day, usually I'll use the I'll use that same mask throughout the day, that 195, and then I'll change out the surgical mask as needed. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot less of the stuff is being, you know, reused at this point. Um, Would you but- say, so, I mean, not to kind of jump ahead too far, I mean, but the, you know, it's almost like it's kind of leaving the media space a little bit, even though hot, some hospitals are still jam-packed with people, you know. Would you, like, talk about that a little bit? Or, like, kind of what's the situation, you know? Like, currently in the hospital? I'm not sure what the question entirely is. To tell you yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So, so, like, where do we stand now? Um, yeah. We as an institute um, are not terribly full of uh, COVID stuff, but we're plenty. Mm -hmm. The thing is, um, every, you know, throughout different times of the year, you'll find that all the different St. Louis area hospitals are quite full at different times, like especially during flu season and whatnot, without Mm -hmm. a pandemic on board. Um, We actually don't have like a remarkable surplus of beds, like generally speaking, in um, our medical institutes and our capacity to handle like influxes of people. Um, it's not uncommon throughout multiple points of the year to be at one of these major hospitals. And there's, you know, four beds available in the hospital or something mm-hmm. um, before the pandemic hit, you know, where we really are that full with everything else going on, just even in flu season and stuff. Um, so the idea that we could take this giant influx of all these other patients on top of that um, was something that was, you know, just not the case necessarily, which is why we obviously paused all the different surgeries and stuff. I would say our numbers are slowing down, um, mm-hmm. but for quite some time, I don't know that a ton of it's really, um, at least for what I'm seeing. So my area particularly is the critical care area where we're putting these people on ECMO for COVID. Um, these people, um, have, a fair number of them actually even coming from our regional area. 
So they're actually, we're getting calls throughout the day frequently from different states, be it Kansas, Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, Arkansas, Alabama, even. I, we've actually taken people from Alabama before and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's still plenty of areas that are very, very slammed with this. And like I talked about with um, there being a limited number of these machines and people that can operate them and whatnot, um, people have come from fairly far distances without getting into too specific of where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. But, you know, six, eight hour places that would be by car away, people are coming from that far away. Um, right. If they're a good candidate for this type of thing to get these interventions and um, people, you know, hospitals are having to throw out feelers all over the place, trying to find beds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're encountering, um, we've received people from hospitals out of state that, um, somebody went on, as I talked about people going under elective surgery, sometimes have things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, we've received people from out of state at a different hospital where they had something elective done and then had an acute need to be in an ICU because of what had happened to them, um, during their surgery and mm-hmm. the hospital didn't have any ICU beds Man. and there weren't any ICU beds close by. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, came all the way up to us, um, from, I don't know, five hours away or some, something along those four or five hours away by ambulance. Um, or they may have actually been by helicopter. Now that I think about that one, but there's a lot of these instances and for quite some time, especially this summer with the, the last wave um, with the Delta variant, which a whole nother uh, can of worms to even open up talking about that. That has been awful and have been seeing a different patient population than the first time, much, much younger skewed and very, mm-hmm. very sick. Uh, with the very um, poor outcomes and often, oftentimes with the Delta um, variety, but people, so, you know, people are um, to say that, um, you know, one of my, you know, kind of a political talking point saying that nobody ever died from lack of a ventilator or something like that, mm-hmm. um, that there was never actually a shortage enough of materials or anything anywhere in the United States that nobody ever died from that. I think it was a joke um, to say that nobody ever um, you know, had to be, uh, critically triaged. Um, you know, when you, when you get these large influxes of, of people, you were seeing this in Italy and, you know, I think in areas like New York and some different areas, they were kind of doing mass casualty triaging at first when they were having these large influxes of people. What, what that means is say you're in a war environment and, um, you're the, um, medical camp or whatever, if, um, or you're on the battlefield and, um, uh, 15 people are hit by uh, mortar fire. Someone's missing half of their body. That's not the person you're going to go direct your attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, that person is not going to be viable. So you're going to go on to the next file person that's going to be viable and you're going to use your resources and try to save people you think are going to make it. So actually we're seeing this in Italy quite a bit where people were um, having to decide, you know, which patients would be most likely to recover if we put them on a ventilator, because we only have so many ventilators, so many ICU beds, so many people to take care of them. There's a finite number of materials, um, you know, who is the best candidate for this? And that's actually something they were encountering over in Italy and stuff, and which is terrifying to be doing like wartime triaging in the hospital mm-hmm. um, when there's an influx like this. Um, so I, I think the notion that none of that happened here in the United States is entirely a joke. Um, I, I'm sure it happened in some capacity or another. Um, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, there's a finite number of circuits available in the St. Louis area for ECMO and the notion that everybody that needed ECMO got it isn't certainly not true. 
Um, mm. You know, now the good news to that though is there is another side of that coin. Sometimes we think that these people that are so sick that they, if they do not get ECMO, they're going to die. And sometimes they may have a very bumpy road, but uh, we've seen some people that we actually turned down because, you know, for whatever reason or another, they were not a good candidate for ECMO. And we thought their chances of survival, if we put them in the machine was actually worse. Um, so we did not want to tie up a circuit with them when we th- felt that they were going to have a bad outcome. Um, you know, you know, the, the, the thing that you worry about as a practitioner or, you know, somebody taking care of them is that you've just given them a death, this person, a death sentence. And that's not, not something that anybody in this, in our medical teams takes lightly, you know, we don't want to turn somebody away from giving them a, uh, you know, a intervention that might save them. That's the last thing we want to do. But at the same time, we don't want to, you know, do something we would call futile and that we think if we put them on, they're not going to make it and then tie that up and have somebody else come along that had a much better chance of making it. Um, and then couldn't get it because the thing was already in use, you know, that's a very delicate game. Luckily enough, I'm not at a high enough level that I have to make those decisions. Um, but those are gut wrenching things. You're, um, you know, the, the, it's not a one person is making these decisions either. It's the entire medical team, um, in our area between the ICU doctors and the cardiothoracic surgeons that are going to cannulate these people. It's a, it's a conversation between all of them, um, that are involved in this program, you know, do we think this person is a good thing? So the nice enough things is uh, trying to believe, remember the acronym for the um, group, but there's a, a set of standards that they actually have out for ECMO now. It's like kind of like a, one of the national um, groups that's involved in ECMO and kind of puts out you know the current research, what the um, data from current patients on it and different things. So there's kind of some different metrics that they look at. So um, generally speaking, they're looking for people with a BMI less than like 35 or 40. 40 is kind of the hard cutoff. Um, now we're actually, remember how I told you earlier that you, generally speaking, our cutoff used to be 70 um, mm-hmm. in our first go around with this and everything. All right, we've actually brought that down to like around 50. You know, and now some of these things are all, they're kind of somewhat loose guidelines, but generally speaking, um, and then one, only um, single organ failure. So um, if this person has a kid, has kidneys failing and their liver failing, that's multi-organ failure. So that's contraindicated to put this somebody on that because their likelihood of survival is almost completely zero or it is zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, a number of different other metrics, but there's kind of guidelines to what, um, they're putting out there that, you know, seems like the most f- fruitful way to, you know, decide who can go on and receive these therapies and have a good chance of success. Um, so luckily that's a team effort, but you know, the last thing we're really wanting to do is like not give people an intervention that can help save them. Um, you know, like I've said before, are we in the healthcare realm, we're, in the business of trying to get people better and back to their families and loved ones, you know, mm-hmm. we want people to get better, go home and, you know, continue to be productive members of society. Um, we're not looking for people to all expire. This is not, um, that's not anybody's goal in this. Right. Yeah. Pfizer wants to sell you uh, erection pills. They don't want to kill you with a vaccine. Right. <laughs> Funny enough. Um, it's not the biggest money maker, actually vaccines. Um yeah. Just so to speak, there's many other methods through which they make a lot of money. Um, you know, say what you will about lobbying practices with pharmaceuticals and whatnot. But, um, you know, while there's some area for improvement, obviously, in how we conduct our research in the United States, um, looking at the that whole can of worms, the 
conversation of how stuff's funded through um, for research and different stuff and the conversation of what is an acceptable amount of money to make on each individual product, buying up old patents, for instance, EpiPens, and then jacking up the price exponentially by different companies, stuff like that um, all has its own ethical conversation that, you know, we could delve into, but would take hours for each instance um, or whatever. But there's a lot of other things that companies make a lot more money on, including like Pfizer, BioNTech um, and, different stuff you know there's a lot of other things they make a lot of money on um on a recurring basis um a shot that they maybe get a few doses on that they're reimbursed at a you know fixed rate for um that's not that high is is probably not their concern for money making um and the funny thing is looking at how the SARS COVID vaccine was developed. It was actually built off a framework that started back 2000, mm-hmm. 2001. Actually, the mRNA technology goes back to much, much further than that. But they, the framework that they built all of this off of, which is one of the most amazing things, actually seeing also from the perspective in the healthcare um, realm was seeing them quickly developing this vaccine. Um, the cool thing was they actually had um, worked on developing a SARS COVID vaccine in the early 2000s and were getting to the point of like ready to go into um, trial phases um, and delivering this. Um, but the need kind of disappeared for it. Mm-hmm. So the things, the framework was all there, but they never went through the whole process and actually brought this stuff to market because, um, like I was saying, the need kind of disappeared. And there was, um, in this instance, there wasn't, I don't think, a good return on investment type of thing for them to go down that route, nor was there a big need for it. Right. Um, you don't normally see um, pharmaceutical companies um, striving for their next big break off of vaccines for their money-making things. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of other uh, ailments that to cure that uh, reimburse at much higher rates than prophylactic um, tertiary right. medicine, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so there's plenty of other metrics. So, that was one of the one of the other things that was just insane, you know. Learning that in early January of last year or February, one of the two, I might, you know, dates will be a little bit fuzzy, of course, but not knowing the exact. Um, but once they had the genetic sequencing, the fact that they were able to, you know, kind of plug and chug this formula and bring these things to f- to phase trials and start injecting people within weeks was, I mean, how wonderful was that? That we actually had this framework already set out and we were able to like tackle this early and get stuff the ball rolling quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that we found was um, red tape is a lot of what um, slows things down. Um, and when you get a collaborative effort between the scientific research community to all work together um, in an unprecedented standpoint, like, you know, something that we've never really seen, um, all these different companies working on trying to come out with a vaccine for this and working together and all that good work there. And then, you know, kind of having carte blanche checks to some extent. Um, to be able to put the money into it, you know, whether it was people working tirelessly in the 24 hour cycle, um, you know, having people working at all times of day on this stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and come together and have like a bringable to market stuff. You know, we're talking about something that really didn't, um, you know, the pandemic didn't hit the U S market really, really hard until, you know, maybe February or March and then going into May um, during that time frame, and having something like testable even before it's really hit our shores and start working on that is just an unbelievable uh, gift, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, fast forward to um, for myself, December 22nd, the second day um, of them offering um, shots actually in our St. Luke's uh, COVID vaccine clinic, 
Um, and being part of phase 1A is an uh, at-risk healthcare employee working in ICU with COVID patients. Uh, day two of our shots, uh, I was able to get my first shot of the COVID, COVID um, vaccine, uh, which I did get the Pfizer flavor, as I like to call it. <laughs> That's one of the things I always like to refer to is what flavor did you get? Like right. it's an ice cream where you get to, you know, sort of thing or something. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ability for that to come out so quickly you know, looking at the process in previous years and especially stuff without as much groundwork and research and be able to develop um, is just amazing. And what, what a gift that we were actually able to, you know, right. Manufacture this stuff in that type of time frame is just insane. Yeah. Right. Um, or real. I would just like to point out, you know, people, people around the world are still dying because they can't get the vaccine. And then people in this country are choosing to die instead of getting a free vaccine. Something I can speak to on that front is um, people getting to the ICU um, and before getting the, um, you know, some of these people that uh, unfortunately have been misguided, whether it be, you know, politicization, propaganda and general mistrust and whatnot, um, being fed bad information. And um, then before getting the breathing tube, asking if it's too late to get the vaccine is one of the most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching things you can witness. These people that through, you know, the powerful tool that is propaganda and misinformation, those tools, um, you know, being afraid to take, you know, medical advice um, and, you know, get these things that could have helped prevent them from getting to the point of mm-hmm. being sick enough to need a ventilator and whatnot. Um, getting to that point and uh, kind of at a point where it's too late um, right and having to tell them no it's it's too late to get the vaccine at this point um, mm-hmm. though it would seem rather obvious that it's too late once they're in the ICU getting ready to get their breathing a breathing tube and whatnot um, right. that realization and seeing the fear and like grown adults um, facing that and realizing that um, they've kind of fallen prey to this terrible misinformation and um everything is is and this propaganda is just awful uh seeing people realize that they've uh been fed lies and um were convinced to mistrust where they shouldn't have and now they're completely up shit creek is just an awful gut-wrenching thing and um to a large amount of people that are you know not exposed to that a lot of people don't think that's still going on that's still going on every day throughout the country i can guarantee mm-hmm. um i've seen it firsthand you know um People in the 20-something-year-old age bracket um, had a gentleman that was not that much younger than myself. It was only a couple days younger than myself that um, when we asked um, after he ended up on ECMO, you know, about the parents, about him getting vaccinated, he's like, oh, yeah, it was like on his to-do list, but it was just something on the back burner kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where There's a lot of people also that just, you know, I've kind of been waiting this out, which, you know, is perfectly, you know, respectable to you know, that's, if you want to wait out and you're worried about the long-term consequences, I think that's a fair thing to be, you know, wary of, of course, but you know, it's an entirely risk benefit um, analysis and that's a personal choice for everybody. But like most things, um, seeking expert advice on that stuff and um, asking the people that are most well-trained in it, you know, you don't go to your barber to ask for advice on what you should do to your car. Um, Right. You know, not necessarily, unless your barber also happens to have a side hustle of fixing cars (laughs) too. But like this idea of like, you know, you don't go to your financial uh, advisor to ask him 
um, which um, type of knee replacement joint is best for you? Or, you know, what, (laughs) you know, this idea of, uh, you know, going to the people in their respective areas of expertise, Mm -hmm. getting their, you know, expert opinion, a lot of times is good. And looking at the overall, what the medical community is doing, um, most people are taking these things and having not very many ill effects um, from these vaccines. The rate of complications and stuff is very low. Um, And seeing the unfortunate cycle of the 24 hour news cable cycle, um, mm-hmm. taking off and running away with possible, um, complications from these vaccines, looking at like AstraZeneca and the blood clots and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I remember when that first came out and people were asking me like, Oh my gosh, what's going on with that? And this is before AstraZeneca was even being given in doses here in the U S yeah. Um, if I remember the numbers correctly at the time I was reading articles, it um, was like 37 possible um, yeah. TE, which is veno, venous thromboembolism, meaning a clot in the venous system somewhere. You know, you have an arterial in a venous system, a clot somewhere in their venous system, um, possibly associated. But the thing was at this time, they were just reported adverse events. Right. So the, the one thing to, to kind of understand here, I can actually, I'll backtrack a little bit, but um, people talk about the VAERS system and the reporting system for um, complications after the COVID vaccine. So the VAERS system is a user input system. What that means is um, I myself, after I actually got my first jab with the COVID shot while I was sitting there in the waiting room, waiting my uh, compensatory 15 minutes or whatnot, they had to make sure that you don't have a reaction or anything in the waiting room. I went ahead and enrolled on my phone into the VAERS system. So what Mm -hmm. that is, is it's a system that would text you um, a link and then you would click on it and it would ask you, how are you feeling today? Um, you know, have you noticed any ill, you know, changes in your health? How are you feeling, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And you would report side effects and whatnot um, to the um, vaccine. So um, the concept of that being like a, a user input system means that it's not all verified. It's a reporting system for them to be able to then go and investigate and look into possible complications and see if those are things that actually we're related to these people receiving a vaccine. Um, if I had chosen to enter into the free text that that my dick fell off after I received the vaccine, that was now listed as a possible adverse event in the VAERS right. system. But does that verify it at all? No, it's just a reporting system so that then they can go and investigate and see if they can link these different things to try to figure out if there's certain things that are... Um, you know, popping up as frequent things. So we can know if there's, these are like expected side effects possibly yeah. um, with the vaccines and stuff. So that idea that this system, um, people like always refer to it, like it's some like, you know, manual of exactly what happens if you get um, the vaccine and whatnot is, yeah. you know, not, I, not necessarily I, true. I self-reported on my vaccine report card that my dick fell off after I got the vaccine. <laughs> I failed to mention that I had hung a, di- uh, hung a sex toy from my ceiling fan. Yeah, you know, something like that. Um, but the, um, so the thing is, when you looked at the AstraZeneca and the blood clots, so that was mm-hmm. 37 of adverse events um, after the vaccine. So all that means is it was something bad happened to these people after they'd received the vaccine. Right. Um, and looking at that time period. So an adverse event means something bad happened after you receive this thing. Does that mean it was caused by the thing that you received? that, you know, you were monitoring that period after the, no, it doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with it mm-hmm. at all. Um, right. So that early reporting not. and then, 
yeah, correlation and causation, um, you know, mm-hmm. looking at things and actually trying to connect the dots and see if they're actually related or not. Cause you know, if somebody re- gets hit by a bus a week after, you know, the next day after getting their COVID shot, that was an inverse event for that person. An inverse event being in a bad event, they got hit mm-hmm. by a bus. Does it have anything to do with them having received a shot the day before? Probably not. Yeah. Um, Right. So that that entire thing, and then the news media, um, the twenty four hour cycle, running with that, and then um, seeing them stopping um, giving the shots um, in right. some countries was- um, against the advice of the people that were, um, you know, the medical experts in those capacities that were advising, mm-hmm. you know, um, the different regulating bodies or whatever, who the people who are controlling whether or not they're giving these things, stopping those all of a sudden mm-hmm. because of these reports. Re- uh, reported events. I believe at the time there had been about 17 and a half million doses of the yeah. AstraZeneca given. And then you look at 37 possible events that could maybe later be connected to it. So before you even take the realm of whether or not these events actually happen because of it or not, just looking at the rates um, at which they occur. So venous thromboembolism, meaning a blood clot in your venous system, um, uh, for the average everyday person in the general populace with nothing taking aside anything to do with vaccine, not vaccine, your incidence is somewhere between one to 2% per or one to two people per 1000 of the populace. Mm-hmm. So a very, very small percentage. So um, looking at it in a numerical form, you're like 0.001. Um, and then looking at that out of 17 and a half million, <laughs> you're off by quite a few decimal points. Um, mm. So looking at that, it's uh something to consider um, very, very, very small outside the um, likelihood that it's actually anything connected to it. So if it's something that's occurring at a propensity of like a thousand times less than it actually occurs in the general populace, I believe it came out to about one out of every 429,000 people or something when I did the yeah. numbers on it at the time um, ha- would have had a blood clot. Um, when you're talking about one of every 420,000 instead of one in, out of every thousand or up as high as two out of every thousand, the general populace, um, you know, it's pretty safe to say it's probably not related. Right. Um, now they did find there was maybe some more propensity for people that um, were female yep. and uh, on birth control, which leaves you at a much, much higher risk, actually, for um, getting things, blood yeah. clots and different things. Yeah, I, I'll just uh, before before we start wrapping on things, I'll just say I remember when that happened, um, and somebody, you know, that I went to high school with sh- uh, shared a a Fox News article about you know how, oh, should we, you know, it's so safe, it's so safe, huh? Look at this, and then it's like point zero 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 eight percent of people who got that vaccine had this problem and you have to be a woman for that to be even a problem for you. And it's like, listen, man, like human beings in general are pretty poor at risk assessment, I guess. So I'm told, but 0.00008% at the time, that's what it was. Um, I don't know if it, it changed. So don't quote me on that number, but like, orders of magnitude less than a percent likelihood that you'll have have problems yeah so (laughs) probably but yeah so we are i guess over uh, over two hours here I, i you know we could talk about this stuff for days obviously and so maybe maybe we'll you know if you're interested have you come back talk about more 
because I think the things we discussed were extremely important. Um, and to hear from somebody who's been, you know, on the on the front lines, I don't know if we're still using that phrase, but, you know, ha- hands on, uh, I think is very important because you can see as many talking heads on TV shows as you want. You can see a viral tweet or a Facebook post about, you know, uh, my cousin's friend's balls or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, the uh, secondary, well, my cousin said he heard from somebody, you know, this uh, yeah. several lines <laughs> removed uh, of communication uh, always as a source really cracks me up, you know. That's <laughs> yeah. um, a it's like going back to the high school days. Oh yeah, well my brother's sister's cousin has like a six thousand horsepower Mustang. And he <laughs> yeah. could totally beat your car, or you yeah. know, like the propensity to make up tall tales of, of about something that um, somebody that's so far removed from us we can't necessarily like you know talk to them or anything. Yeah, you can't yeah. you can't verify. We don't actually or... know that person's name or anything where they reside. None of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, do you guys have any final questions for Brandon before Brandon, do you have any, you know, closing thoughts you would like to give before we uh, formally wrap this baby up? Um, I'm sure I've got lots of thoughts, but um, it's uh, been reassuring to me what I've been seeing uh, personally, um, you know, in terms of people that have been getting the vaccine. Um, so far, me personally, I've only seen um, one person that was vaccinated end up on um, an ECMO machine. Um, you know, I'm sure there's other cases throughout the country. The majority of what I'm seeing now is people with the Delta variant um, unvaccinated as the almost every single person, except for one outlying instance. Um, and the person that was vaccinated, they bounced back very quickly and got off that. And I, I just got a recent update actually. Um, either today or yesterday, that they were actually back home with their family and everything and doing well. That's great. Um, so there are still success po- stories and stuff. And um, we also have had some great successes on people that were unvaccinated and that have made it back um, to their livelihood. But um, I think if anybody, um, you know, actually came and saw the everyday torture um, that going through getting extremely sick and, and getting on one of these machines and stuff is, um, that we're seeing with these unvaccinated people and their lungs just completely um, being destroyed and having to be on these machines for a long time and sometimes not getting better ever and seeing the gut-wrenching torture that it is on their families um, and having to see them in the state that's that nobody should have to see their loved ones in mm-hmm. um, that stuff's really powerful and it's ungodly awful um, what these family members are going through with stuff um, you know, especially in some of these families where this is really hitting some families really hard. And you're hearing about, you know, several members of family all perishing from this. And, you know, this is destroying families everywhere in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea that um, somebody that may have, you know, come into the hospital, gotten to the ICU, gotten ECMO and could have been on this for like 60 days, um, and then had to go through the recovery of when they woke up um, eventually and they were getting better. These people that are chemically paralyzed and uh, sedated and everything. Um, these people are waking up and they're so weak from being bed bound for two months that, you know, when you ask them to squeeze their hands, you know, you're talking about like, this is all they have. And mm-hmm. someone having to rehab from that all the way back to like a functioning person and like going about your everyday life 
is an unbelievably grueling task. Um, so I think that the conversation a lot of times that people talk about the mortality rate, well, that person didn't die, but they went through what I would consider hell, you know, mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. earth in some respects, you know, um, you know, going through that is not something that I would say is <laughs> something that I, you know, maybe Design dying would have been thing. easier. Trying mm-hmm. to recover from that type of event is unbelievably hard and not knowing the long-term effects of what their outlook is for fully recovering from that stuff and the long-term health effects, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the mortality argument is something that's kind of silly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are fates to, to, in my opinion, there are fates worse than death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what I would call getting stuck in limbo um, where you may be having an oxygen brain injury from your oxygen getting so low, your brain is permanently damaged. Um, your lungs never recover well enough. You have been, uh, received a tracheotomy where you have a tube down here instead of up here to breathe through. And you're stuck on a ventilator permanently and end up in some type of, some form of long-term, um, acute care facility or something for like a long period of time stuck in that type of limbo. Um, that's like a form of torture that I would never want to subject somebody to. Mm-hmm. Um, that person didn't die from it. Right. Um, so I think that whole conversation of worrying about mortality. Um, and I really think the, sh- the shift that we're going to see going forward is the long-term effects. Um, that's a whole nother conversation I could easily spend hours on seeing what, you know, what we're seeing, what we're calling like long COVID mm-hmm. um, where people are having stuff similar to like Lyme disease these inflammatory response problems that are persisting for long periods of time, um, cardiac problems, lung foam problems in terms of pulmonary fibrosis and stuff. Um, the long-term complications personally scare me a lot more than death. Um, you know, the, the reason that, you know, people sometimes call the death the easy way out is true. Um, recovering and dealing with these chronic, like very severely debilitating, debilitating health problems, mm-hmm. um, especially depending on what your status going into this stuff, whether you have long-term disability insurance, the social safety nets that are in place that you may or might not have, depending on your socioeconomic status going into this, navigating those fronts um, after these acute events, um, I think is really where people should be more focused on stuff than necessarily whether or not you're going to die from it. You know, what if you have a long-term health complication and maybe you work in a particular field um, where you work with electricity or something and you ended up with a implanted cardiac defibrillator and you're no longer able to touch any running equipment or electrical mm-hmm. equipment for risk of setting off your defibrillator, you know, um, you know, there's so many different things like this that can pop up afterwards that are completely life-changing and not necessarily in a good way. Um, that I think are much, much scarier than the, the prospect of dying from this, you know, um, long-term debilitating illness is a very difficult road to, to navigate. And depending, especially upon your social safety nets, personal family nets and everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to navigate those things. And some people trying to navigate those things alone is like an impossible task, it seems like. And so um, I'm reassured to see, you know, a lot of people doing well, Um, but this is far from over, I'd say. And, um, the recent bouts with the Delta variant, seeing younger and younger people, um, getting this when we have an easy remedy, um, available preventative wise, um, in terms of getting vaccinated and keeping you from getting this sick. Um, you know, none of us are Superman and it's, um, you know, odds pool looking at everything, 
as it as we keep seeing more variants pop up and stuff, you know, taking that risk and hoping that you've got coverage and everything with the vaccine you get. Um, I like my chances personally a lot better with having at least some protection rather than none. You know, um, I wouldn't want to rock roll through a, a pit full of porcupines completely in the nude. I'd rather have a at least some type of protection. <laughs> right. You know, right. the idea that you know something's better, better, definitely better than nothing going into this. And um, I really hope that anybody that's really on the fence, you know, if you have a primary doctor, go talk to them and, and, you know, get their thoughts, Um, you know, really have a conversation sit down and see what people are actually saying Mm -hmm. in terms of like medical experts and whether they think it's something that's right for you. And, you know, if you're just, your thing is you don't know which route you want to go, you know, then, start doing research on that and seeing which route you want to go. But um, the bottom line is that they're showing these vaccines are fairly effective and have good outcomes, low rates of complications. And, and, and importantly, num- large number of people have given, gotten doses of this without ill effects. Um, myself included, I'm probably going to go actually um, in two days and get my booster shot. Cause I qualify now as a um, at risk, you know, healthcare worker on the front and uh, mm-hmm. high exposure risk, um, getting my booster. Um, if it's something that, you know, you're still curious about, you know, go and start looking at stuff. And um, there's no better time to start than the present, really. That's right. that's really the thing. It's never, the only time is it's too late is when you are already in the ICU getting the breathing tube put in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the less people I see that end up having that, the happier I am quite personally, because, um, you know, a large number of people are burnt out in the healthcare field right now from all of this, not to look at, you know, our, you know, burnout or whatnot, but, um, you know, we don't really, nobody wants to see all these people suffering and sick like this. Um, like I said before, we all want to see people getting better and not having undergoing these circumstances. So if you're, you know, on the fence, um, I hope that at least, you know, maybe somebody out there, um, this may, have made them, you know, stop and take another look at things. Um, and, you know, seriously consider getting it, um, as a preventative to try to mitigate your risk. So, um, Mm -hmm. just like putting on seat belts, you know, wearing a helmet, running, riding a bike or motorcycle, that type of stuff, you know, we do a lot of stuff to mitigate our risks as people. Um, and, you know, especially this last year and a half, we're seeing life is fairly delicate. Um, we're not quite as invincible as we like to think of ourselves sometimes. And, um, now you've got a number of different things that take you out in life, but, um, I like to mitigate all the easiest ones that are low, uh, cost and easy to do for myself Mm -hmm. in terms of mitigating my risk. Awesome. All right. Well, I really appreciate it. Like I said, I, I think this was an extremely important conversation because, you know, most of, you know, you can see, again, some nurse post uh, a video on Twitter and maybe that person is a nurse. Maybe that person's not. You can see somebody on NBC or ABC saying, yeah, hospital's full. And then, well, that's mainstream media, you know. Um, and I guess they could say, you know, how can they verify that you're a nurse? But I promise. Uh- <laughs> um, well, what you can do actually is there's a you can actually look up on the Missouri like nursing website if um you want you can take my name and search it and you'll find my nursing license pops up there's a quick <laughs> verification thing that you can actually look up uh if you have the full name of somebody 
um, and what state they're practicing in. I practice in Missouri. You can actually type in and look my name up in the registry and it will pop up and say that I have an active RN license. Um, you know, does, does that work for uh, each state? I don't know if every state has it, but I know here, at least in Missouri, that does work. If you have somebody's full name, you can go up and I like uh, for like, for instance, you know, one of the blessings over the last year was occasional different places would, um, you know, give you a discount if you are a nurse or whatever. So I'd either mm-hmm. have my employee badge or sometimes I actually would pull up my verification on there before kind of ID.me and stuff um, had an uptick. Um, that is something you can do though. Yeah. Nice. Here, at least here in the Missouri, I don't know if it's in every state. I would be surprised if a large number of states, you know, Missouri being a little bit um, backwards on some stuff, uh, sometimes behind the curve, so to speak. Yeah. If, um, if I'd be surprised if it's a thing here shit. that it's not <laughs> a things elsewhere too. True that, true that. So, right. well, thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Thank yeah you thanks so for having much. me on guys. And uh, I'm more than happy to, talk about uh stuff anytime from the healthcare perspective at least from the icu perspective and give what little you know i know about stuff and um one thing i find is i keep going further along in medicine going further in degrees is uh the idea that we know everything is is uh so convoluted and you know the one of the best parts about science is you know they say every important discovery has already been made but that's so far from true and the propensity for all the stuff that's still out there for us to discover and learn. The thing I'm finding is I keep going further along and just getting in uh, my second degree in the healthcare world um, is that I keep getting, a, you know, absorbing more and I keep finding out how much more there is out there that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's one of the kind of the beauties that um, especially anywhere in the scientific field that we find is, you know, as you, you know, open Pandora's box of a new subject or new area that you look into, there's always more out there. Um, and not every stone is, uh, has been turned over. There is still new leaves and stones that turn over everywhere um, in many different fields. And, you know, the rate at which we're having developments in the medical field, scientific field, um, you know, different things in terms of ecological preservation and stuff like trying to, you know, kind of save our planet here. Um, there's still a lot of stuff to be done and advancements to be made. And I think that's one of the biggest things that uh, kind of gives me hope is that there's still so much more out there and there still are so many, you know, intelligent people and hardworking people just dedicated to, you know, advancing us all um, that there's still so much out there for us to be able to do. And, you know, uh, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, as they say. <laughs> so I, I, you know, throughout this, as much as all it's been doom and gloom, um, I've seen a lot of stuff that still gives me hope for humanity, despite all of uh, social media's attempts to convince me that otherwise. Yep. That's good. All right. Well, until next time, I hope uh, anybody who listened to this learned some things, enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're not vaccinated, like like Brandon said, talk to your doctor. Um, but until next time, if you did like the show, I'm not going to do all the rate and review stuff. You know it by this point. Just revive, rate and review the show, please. Subscribe. Just, <laughs> subscribe. Subscribe. <laughs> subscribe now. Laugh. Subscribe early. Subscribe <laughs> often. <laughs> yeah, subscribe early. Subscribe often. If you didn't like this podcast, leave a review. <laughs> if you liked it, leave that. a review. If you feel neutral, just say even neutral. Yeah. The more ratings and reviews you can get, the better. 
<laughs> exactly. All righty. Well, it was great talking to you guys. Everybody have a good evening. All right. See ya.